Ciao. Ciao. Jalo Chow Chow Podcast has returned. What have I done to you? What do you want from me? We want you to listen. We want you to subscribe. And we want you to join our Facebook group. Do you know how to do those things? I don't know. I don't know anything. Well then, it seems we have no choice. <laughs> Se ha battuta su di me E su quanti questa sera Stanno seduti accanto a me Scenderà 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 Una maledizione ad ognuno di noi Una maledizione ad ognuno di noi Ciao ciao everybody and welcome to another exciting edition of the Giallo Ciao Ciao podcast This is episode 93, and today we are going to be deep diving into The Embalmer, 1965 proto-giallo, also known as The Monster of Venice. My name is Chris, and I run a little website called thejallowscore.com. Please go to it. I've spent a lot of time on it, and I would really like visitors. And with me today, uh, as always, my co-host all the way from Italy is Al. How are you, sir? Ciao, ciao. Ciao, ciao. Oh, you know, Chris, just hanging out, getting ready to record another episode of Ciao, ciao. Feeling pretty good. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, Before we talk about the Embalmer, we've got a bunch of stuff going on in the Jalo world. And, uh, you know, I thought about this right before we started recording, that we seem to always find stuff to talk about, despite the fact that these films are like 50 years old. (laughs) Um, It blows my mind. And if you look at the number of films, um, we may not even be halfway through all the films that are available to to watch. So um, that's true. There's just it's just an unending um, fountain of information and uh, of entertainment. But um, what I wanted to uh, first say is that uh, we put out. Last the last episode ninety two where we covered Death on the Four Poster, and that's been out for less than a week, and we've got over two hundred downloads on that episode. So I'm excited. I think we're starting to see a little bit of an uptick in listenership, which is great. The episode before that, the Possessed, is up to four hundred and twenty eight downloads, so that's great. And also, I want to mention that not too long after I published. Uh, the episode that we just did recently on Death on the Four Poster, I, up until today, have added 15 new people to the Facebook group. So wow. 
We're getting um, some new members. We're getting people listening. I'm not exactly sure if there's anything going on that would indicate why this is happening or if people are discovering us that didn't before or word of mouth or who knows. But uh, uh, I'm glad to see it. And thanks to everybody who's listening and uh, welcome to all the new people on the group. And just to kind of throw it out there right away, we have been doing this Jalo podcast for quite a long time for everybody who's new. And we've changed the format around and we've changed the people on the podcast around a little bit. But we typically have the same kind of format, which is we talk about some Jalo stuff and then we do a deep dive into a particular film and we go scene by scene. And it's not everybody's cup of tea. But we have no plans to change the format because really there isn't anyone that's complaining about it right now. And the reason why I bring that up is just to let you know how you could complain if you wanted to, which is to email us at jallochowchow at gmail.com. You can also go to the Facebook group, which is called Jallo Chow Chow, and join. I will let you in as soon as I possibly can when I get the alert, and you can complain to us that way. Um, again, it's been back and forth a lot. But this seems to be the format that we enjoy. And like we've said before, Al, this is kind of like you're hanging out with the two of us in, you know, your living room somewhere. And it's a long form podcast, you know, usually three plus hours. Mm -hmm. And some people, I think, like to listen to it in short segments, like throughout the week. Some people like to sit down and, and listen to it all at once. And I would assume if I was the average listener of our podcast, the way that I would go about it is I would see what the current episode, you know, if I was up, let's say I was current and I was up to date on all the episodes, the next episode that comes out, I see what the film is. And in preparation for listening to the podcast, I watch the film. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if everybody does that. It's very possible that some people pick one that they've never seen because they want to know if it's interesting enough by our standards to invest the time into it. But I mean, honestly, if you're investing four hours listening to us talk about the movie, <laughs> <laughs> what's another hour and a half to actually watch the fucking thing? But I don't know. What are your thoughts on this, Al? Do you have any perspectives on why, why we may be getting some new members or how people might approach this podcast? I really have no idea. I assume there's not any kind of general jalo podcast forum out there where people are discussing things other than the facebook groups but those are pretty insulated and i think we're both on probably all of those and we would have seen something if there was some chatter about this podcast yeah personally the way i discover podcasts is if a new movie is coming out or if an old movie is being re-released on Blu-ray or something and I either have fond memories of having seen it before or had heard about it but never bothered to check it out, I'll just do a podcast search for that film title and then I'll scroll through the results until I find something that looks interesting. Uh, and gotcha. I'll download maybe two or three or four different podcasts about that film. And if I like the podcast, then I'll go check out the, the list of episodes that they've done in the past and download a few more if they're films that I know. 
And usually I test drive a podcast with films that I do know so that I can see if they have anything new that I haven't heard before or maybe if their assessment of a film is completely different than mine and yet is an entertaining podcast. I might stick with it. Okay. Uh, And even the podcasts that I have subscribed to and listened to episode after episode in order, I almost never watch a film that I haven't seen before that podcast comes out. That might be different than most podcast listeners. Yeah. But I don't mind listening to podcasts about films that I haven't seen, uh, especially if they're doing a scene by scene. If they're effective at that, then it's like I'm kind of hearing the story of the film during the podcast. And by the time I get around to actually watching it, I've probably forgotten half of the spoilery details anyway. Right, right. So. Well, and and I would think that Giallo is very specific in that regard because, you know, the secret of the film can, you know, you can easily spoil a Giallo. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the hotel manager. <laughs> That's it. You guys don't have to listen anymore to the Damn. podcast. Oh, man. But like there are other films where, you know, certain bits of information that you would consider to be a spoiler uh, can be left in and you still it's still not completely spoiled for you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like if you're thinking about different types of films, like I, the first things that come to mind are you know, fantasy films where one particular character dies and that doesn't really spoil all of the film. It just spoils that particular moment of the film. But with Jalo, it's like <laughs> I can get like I, what I basically just said there just completely spoiled the whole movie. Now, I don't think that knowing who the killer is um, in the movie we're about to talk about um ruins it because it's still a, an interesting movie to watch just for the fun of it but if you're watching that movie if if you're if you're going to watch the embalmer purely for the detective work and to feel good about yourself that you figured out who the killer is before anybody else it's really not worth watching that movie anyway because i don't think that's possible i was reading a little bit of some critical analysis of of jalo and Mikel Coven, who wrote uh, La Dolce Morte. Yeah, La Dolce Morte. He talks about the Scooby-Doo movies mm-hmm. and how Jalo are kind of like Scooby-Doo movies where basically one of the characters that we've been watching throughout the whole episode eventually kind of disappears and then turns up later when they take his mask off and, you know, and that's the end of it. And that's kind of really what happens in this movie. But I think you're right. I think I do the same thing, especially if it's something very specific that I want to hear people talk about. I'll search for that subject in podcasts. And then if it hits on three or four or five different podcast podcasts, I'll, you know, pick one and try it and and see if I enjoy the voices and see if it if it sounds like it's got some production value. Uh, Luckily, people don't really care too much about production value to watch or to to listen to us. Um, The intro is nice. And uh, I try to throw some music in every once in a while, but that's about it. Well, I I think Um, it's getting better. 
<laughs> we, the, the, the problem with our podcast is up until the deep dive starts, I really kind of go through in post-production and really edit it up nicely so that it flows. And once the deep dive starts, I say, I, I'm done. I'm, not, I'm yeah. not doing this anymore. Um, and I guess that's okay because really the deep dive is a stream of consciousness discussion. You really don't want to cut anything out. Um, but I guess I've got, I take a mental note when we do the deep dive and say to myself, okay, this thing I'm talking about here really needs to be cut out. And so then I go back in and try to remember right around where it was that we said that, like if we were either talking about something that was completely off topic or something that just incriminated one of us to, to be painted like a scumbag in one way or another, (laughs) (laughs) I pull that stuff out. But otherwise, um, and I haven't done it for the last three, so hopefully I didn't say anything that would would be that. But yeah, that can um, be tricky when you have to cancel proof your podcast. Yeah, you know? <laughs> but f- for the people at home listening to this one, if you did listen to uh, "Death on the Four Poster" and thought that was too long, uh, Chris and I were just discussing how he chopped out a little over an hour from that discussion, so it could be worse. Yeah. <laughs> or better depending or, on your, yeah, uh, yeah, how much depends. you like us yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> but uh so if you have any opinions about that if uh if the three hour and 38 minute episodes are too short for you send us some feedback Next up, before we get to our big deep dive, I wanted to give a shout out to Pete Halverson, who is one of our group members and provided me with a new book called Bloodstained Narratives. And uh, Pete works for the publishing company, the University Press of Mississippi. This just came out March 2023. It is... A nonfiction anthology, I guess, is the best way to describe it. So many, uh, you know, it's a collection of essays, if you want to, if you want to be a little more academic about it. Edited by Matthew Edwards and Fernando Gabriel Pagnoni Burns. That's a really long name. And it's part of their film studies series, Horror and Monstrosity Studies. Uh, It's very long. It's uh, almost 300 pages. And... I've gone through a little bit of it. I read the introduction and the first article, and I would say that it is the kind of reading material that really only appeals to a certain type of person. Um, If you are interested in reading about how the directors employed some of the techniques and what how that relates to what was going on in the world of movie making, how it relates to what was going on in the culture. And you just want to kind of geek out with all of that stuff. Um, this is the kind of book that it's written in that style. If, if you're more interested in kind of reading about the films themselves and maybe some synopsises, synopsises, maybe some synopsi, 
Which one is that? Anyway. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> if you're if you're interested in reading movie synopses, that might be it. There you go. Um, and looking at photos and lobby cards and and memorabilia, then you're better off with like Troy Howarth's books um, and some of the other books that are like large print format. This is definitely more of an academic read, um, which is not to say that it's a bad thing, but it, you need to be in the mood for it. Chapter one is Jallo and the Zoom Lens discussion. Uh, chapter two is Argento's Evil Eye Movements, Containments, and the Jallo's Possessive Gaze. Uh, mm-hmm. Chapter three is a deep dive on death laid an egg. Chapter four, the transitional giallo, Jess Franco's paroxysmus and the postmodern crisis of temporality. Now, I've never seen that film, so I wouldn't really jump into that <laughs> chapter right away because I right. really wouldn't understand what they're talking about. But anyway, the analog of self-authenticity within the forbidden photos of the lady above suspicion um, the effective complexity of Barbara Boucher in Don't Touch Her, uh, Don't Torture a Duckling. And then um, there's a second part where they go into what's really been done after the classic period of Jalo, or at least the articles are focusing on that period. So Jalo in Hong Kong, there's a chapter on the strange color of your body's tears, which is a neo Jalo that we talked about uh, maybe 40 some episodes ago. <laughs> um, uh, the last chapter in the book is written by Michael Coven, who we were just talking about, who wrote um, La Dolce Morte. And his chapter is about the Canadian giallo, which we talked about a little bit uh, on this show. He includes films like Prom Night, uh, Terror Train, and Happy Birthday to Me, which we did an episode on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did on the giallo score. So... Um, very, very interesting stuff. It's not something that I could just sit down and casually pick up and start reading. Like if it was on the back of my toilet bowl, right? Um, <laughs> you know, there are just certain things that you can put on the tank of your toilet that can stay there forever. Like I had a George Carlin book one time back there and it was just quotes from yeah. George Carlin or the books where they just have lots of pictures and surveys and uh, synopses of uh-huh. the Jalo films, like those can be in the bathroom too. You can look through those because it doesn't require a lot of thought. And you don't have to be um, keeping up with what you've read. Right. But this is different. This is kind of like, okay, I'm in the mood to read something and um, have it be meaningful and have it be thought provoking. And that's what this certainly does because there's a lot of info on it. The one chapter I did read was about the zoom lens and they talk about, they talk about blood and black lace and bird with crystal plumage and how the zoom was used there. And then they talk about a few other things, but then they do a deep dive on how the zoom is used and exploited on strip nude for your killer. And uh, it made me want to go watch strip nude for your killer again to watch all the places where the zoom is being used. But I found it really interesting because it also gives you a little bit more insight into why and how these films were made during that time period. So I'll, one thing I never thought of, but it seems obvious, is that the zoom is a time saver for production. If you can figure out how to visually tell the story you want to tell by simply moving the lens back and forth instead of having to set up the camera and the lighting and then take it down and then move the camera to another place. And then, you know what I mean? So that's one of the things they talk about why the directors may have used zoom more often. Mm -hmm. 
But then it argues that that's kind of a cop out and there's, it, there's more complexity to it, that there's more than one reason why it was used. And they talk about the other ways that it kind of enhances the, the plot or it enhances the character emotions. Um, and it's become kind of a, a visual calling card for Jalo just as much as some of the other things that we talk about, like on the Jalo score. And I wonder now, as I think through this, if um, we should add number of crash zooms as a <laughs> as, as a Jalo score uh, criteria, like number of crash zooms is a, above three or four. But the other thing is when you finally get to Strip, uh, strip Nude for Your Killer, which was made in 75, um, the article goes on to kind of argue that Strip Nude was made with an attitude of we're going to do this to, you know, the nth degree because it's been done for so long mm-hmm. and we want to kind of make fun of it now. And oh, that's why okay. that's why Strip Nude is as it's not just sleazy, right? It's just hokey. It's. It's it's not corny, but it's it's kind of tongue in cheek. Yeah, tongue in cheek and very exaggerated. Like the one gigantic guy in in his tidy whities that gets murdered. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you wouldn't see that in a nineteen sixty nine or nineteen seventies Jalo. And so, what's interesting about the fact that they picked this film in the article to go into detail. You can see some of the zooms being used in this film the traditional way, which is to you know enhance the scene or change the emotion or do something jarring or whatever. But then they also argue that sometimes the zoom is used to just make fun of using the zoom. Right. And uh, I thought that was really cool. Like I never really would have thought of it that way. But if 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 you think about it in practical terms, you know, people were making these films. And, and like churning them out for a straight five-year period. And it was probably almost like, as long as you had a good script, the rest of the production was probably just like factory working, making these films, you know? just uh, th- There's a scene in the movie we're going to cover where they go into, I guess, the editor's office. Mm-hmm. And it's just curtains. Like <laughs> the whole room is curtains. There's no actual right. walls. And you're like, yeah, so a lot of this was put together haphazardly, you know, with production value. But at any rate, um, it's interesting that by '75 there was at least one, probably more filmmakers that were kind of making fun of the zoom or kind of elbowing it in the ribs a little bit. Yeah, when yeah. only six years before, with Five Dolls for an August Moon, there's that opening scene where. Edwige is dancing on the table. Yeah. And it's like Baba's jerking off the lens, zooming in and out and in and out. <laughs> enough that I had to, you know, take a tramadol to get through it. Right. Yeah, that's true. And uh but I also wonder if that was something that happened more in Jalo or Italian genre cinema as opposed to throughout the whole world of cinema at the time. Mm, yeah, so I'm, I'm pretty sure I've seen American and British films from the 60s and well, the late 60s into up to the mid 70s that use Zoom. And I see it every now and then, but usually it's a lot slower and a little more uh, subtle. Right. It's kind of like uh, 
like when they invented the wah pedal, everybody was going nuts with it, you know, and, <laughs> and now people learn to kind of lay off a little bit and do the less is more aesthetic with it. Right. So. Well, I mean, I don't know when five dolls was out. I still think that part of that zoom thing that was happening in that film was just to reinforce the, 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 the whole psychedelic freak out thing. Right. That, and that, you know, those movies were doing that a lot um, in the, in that time period. They're using, I guess the zoom lens to just disorient the viewer and then right. make them feel like they're in some sort of a trip or whatever. But right. that scene in um, Five Dolls where she's dancing, it kind of feels like that. It was it. It's pretty much in the beginning of the film, right? Or they're still introducing all the characters. Yeah, I think it's pretty early, like maybe yeah. the first interior scene after we get. The, I think there's a setup of the house on the beach first, right? And then it goes inside, and the music's blaring and. Uh, I can't remember if anybody else is dancing because I don't think I look too much at anybody else, even with the Zoom. But it was super noticeable. Overall, I think um, simply because I still like I've re I read some of these articles and I go, wow, there's so much about the history of these films and this particular film movement that I don't know yet. Because, you know, like I've watched the movies and I have my own reactions to them. And we sort of get into what if type conversations as we talk about the films. But there's a lot of people and a lot of information out there um, that give you the, the background of what was going on when these films were being made. And so as I read Bloodstained Narratives, I go, I should really go back and read the Coven book completely. Because if you had to start reading critical analysis of the Jalo film and you were interested in an academic take on the whole thing. I think the Mikhail Coven book is the place you would want to start because mm -hmm. I think that covers a lot of it. And I, and I haven't really read a lot of it. I've read some of it. So I, before I finish Bloodstained Narratives, I'd probably go back to Mikhail Coven's book and do that one first. Because I think if you look at some of the, some of the article titles in Bloodstained Narratives, you'll see that it's a, a new take on something or it's a new idea um, based on an an idea that was already established. And if you don't know what that established idea is yet, because you haven't read up on that, then it's kind of lost on you to a certain mm -hmm. extent. So, well, I get excited anytime I come across or there is released a new Jalu related book. And I think the last couple that we had, the, uh, so deadly, so perverse Troy Howarth set, yeah, that was super interesting because it was full of photos and uh, different poster images, but it was kind of like a catalog or encyclopedia of films. I mean, yep. on one hand, that's great because you can find basically anything you're looking for because it was very exhaustive and it's all laid out easy to find. Uh, so there's the encyclopedia type books, but then like the Coven book and this new one, it's Really cool to see that there is a serious film studies academic look at these films so that they're not just uh, trash cinema, as I see some people call them, you know, sometimes even proudly, like it's a badge of honor. <laughs> but, you know, and not that it's not, but 
my point is that there's more to these films than just the exploitation factor and the people making these put a lot more thought into it beyond well most of the people making these put a lot more thought into it besides uh how can we get a girl naked and kill her in an interesting way again right you know right so so it, it, cool. I mean, it, it's a genre that can wear multiple badges. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it can wear the trashy, sleazy badge of honor, but that's not the only badge it needs to wear. So. Yeah. And the, the words academic essay and strip nude for the killer <laughs> in the same sentence, you know, take my money. <laughs> I'll read that. <laughs> so, again, that is a book called Bloodstained Narratives. The, uh, the Giallo Film in Italy and Abroad. And uh, it is from the University Press of Mississippi. I will put a link in the show notes to how you can purchase it. But again, if you just search on what I just said, you'll find it. I don't know if you and I talked about this before uh, or if it was just a discussion I had with uh, with Matt. But in Mikhail Coven's book and throughout this book, and it seems like throughout um, academic film studies in general, they talk about this thing called uh, Filone, which is Mm -hmm. kind of synonymous with the word genre, but it's not exactly the same thing. And um, it's it's a very difficult word for me to use when I'm talking about these films because I still don't really know if I'm using it the right way because my idea of what a Filone is um, is still kind of fuzzy. But when I was reading this last article, it seems like maybe the difference between the genre and the Filone is that in the Filone, um, it's almost as if a group of films started uh, in a particular vein, which is actually the literal what translation of Filone, um, I think. Um, um, like, a, like a vein or a canal or a, something, you know. I would say relate. it's it's like a vein, but not like a vein in your body. It would be right. like a vein, like a mineral vein when right. people are... Uh, digging into the side of a mountain looking for the mother load of let's just say gold for the sake of conversation uh um philo means line okay philone means like a big line or a large fat line and i think that's where they cross it over to mean like a vein okay uh just for myself, every time I see the word filone, if I'm thinking what its equivalent is in English, I just say subgenre because I'm sure there, it's a little more nuanced than just that. Yeah. But from the altitude that I'm looking at cinema from, I don't need to zoom in or magnify it any more than that. Uh, so you could say, like, zombie films are a filone of horror. And then somebody else would say no. Um, 
<laughs> zombie films would be the genre. The subgenre would be radioactive uh, caused <laughs> zombies compared to infected zombies compared, you know. Right. And you could split zombies with <laughs> zombies with cannibals, zombies without cannibals, you know. Right. And zombie cannibals having sex on the beach in the <laughs> Joe D'Amato film. You know, that might be a Filone too. I don't know. Right. <laughs> but uh, I just think of it as subgenre and move on, you know. But, the, and, and that's kind of the way I do too. But the way that I came to understand it a couple of, a few hours ago when I was reading mm-hmm. is about the idea that all of the people making the films in this particular Filone kind of all know that they're making each other's movies and they're all okay with the idea that they're waiting, you know, uh, they're looking for something to be successful and then Mm -hmm. they're going to make their own version of it. And maybe they will expand on the ideas of how to stylize this particular Filone or maybe they'll just rip it off or maybe they will do something completely different, but it's, it's kind of like, I, I kind of, this seems weird, but I'm equating the Filoni idea with this idea in French of terroir, which they use to describe wine. Mm-hmm. And terroir is, from what I understand, a generalized word that basically means what the soil is like in that particular area of France. So huh. when they grow grapes in a very specific region in Bordeaux and they have been doing it for you know, hundred years or however long it's been. When you mm-hmm. taste the wine, there are kind of elements that are indescribable in any other way, except, Oh yes, this is what the area where these grapes are grown tastes like. Right. Um, and I think that that's what Filone kind of means to me. It's like, uh, it's multiple things and it may not necessarily just be what the storyline of the film is about. Um, it's more about kind of all the other things that contribute to it. I don't know. Again, it, it, maybe I'm reading too far into it, but that's what I got out of it. I, I think the idea was that all the directors were kind of in on the idea that, you know, we're all just copying each other. Um, right. And we're just, but you know, they weren't just copying each other. Like last time we talked about uh, Italian ripoff cinema, basically, right, right. And in the uh, the post apocalypse films, they're not just making a carbon copy of Mad Max or uh, Escape from New York, right? They're using those as springboards. Probably maybe just like an elevator pitch to Dino De Laurentiis or somebody. Oh, yeah, we want to do a road warrior, but in the south of France instead of the outback of Australia. And instead of gasoline, they're looking for, I don't know, wine from Bordeaux that tastes like fancy dirt or something. (laughs) (laughs) So, and yeah, okay, that sounds great. But along the way, they're throwing in a bunch of other stuff. Because now that we have the contract to make a quote-unquote Mad Max ripoff, 
as long as we stick to the bare skeleton of a Mad Max ripoff, we can pad it or fill it up with anything else and just go nuts. Right. And that's why a lot of the Italian ripoff cinema is... Uh, it would be kind of a pity to just say, oh, well, that's a Raiders of the Lost Ark ripoff and dismiss it. Yeah, the the three-sentence synopsis sounds exactly like Raiders of the Lost Ark, but it's all the bells and whistles along the way that make it unique. Yeah. So, that, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot more than just a ripoff. So. Right. No, I, no, I, I agree. I think it's uh, I, I don't know. It's it's still kind of cloudy to me. Uh, I feel like there's there's something that everybody else knows that I don't related to. Yeah. <laughs> what the secret of Filone means? Because I yeah I I know they talk about it. You know, in film circles. You know, and you know what's another Filone? Besides the Giallo film, would you say the spaghetti western? Is that a felone or is that a genre? <laughs> I don't know. I think felone might be one of those words that academics make up and it's kind of like a <laughs> wink and a secret handshake to all the others in their master's thesis discussion groups. And <laughs> yeah, somebody just decided to name it. Oh, it's it's this Italian name. It means, you know, a smaller vein off the larger vein. <laughs> right. It just means don't call it a sub sub genre. Call it a filone, <laughs> and never really explain what it is. That way, they'll have to buy our books. It's <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. Now we got to, we got to the bottom of it, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> We are now going to try to tackle the 1965 film called The Embalmer. haven't seen the movie yet this one's pretty easy to find unfortunately the ones that are really free uh on youtube and the one on tubi which you can also watch for free uh the fidelity is pretty bad it's like vhs maybe maybe worse uh, yeah. fidelity quality um i do have a copy that came from a dvd rip and it looks pretty good huh. so i don't know i mean it's not you know, it's not blue quality, um, but it's definitely a step up from what's out there to watch for free. And you can see some more detail when you watch this version, which may be to my advantage because, you know, for you guys who watch it on the free, there's definitely some details that you're missing out on when you when you watch the film, like the way that they set up the scenes and 
kind of the atmosphere of it all because it kind of gets all smudged in the dark. But yeah. I don't have anything else to say. Let's get into the production notes, sir. Okay, the embalmer, Il Mostro di Venezia, The Monster of Venice, 1965. Uh, this film was directed by Dino Tavella. He only has two directing and writing credits to his name. Uh, this and another film called Una Sporca Guerra, which is a dirty war. Uh, his career was so short because, unfortunately, he died in 69 at the age of 49. He has one acting credit for a film called Hombre Sul Canal Grande, which is Shadows on the Grand Canal, which is another film based in Venice. And like him, I think most of the people involved in this film were very local to the Venice area. And also, like him, most of them have very short careers in film, according to their IMDb pages. He wrote this film in collaboration with three other guys, uh, one of which, uh, depending on where you look, his name was either Antonio Walter or Walter Manley. Uh, Antonio Walter Manley is also one of the producers of this film and there was no biographical information about him but for this film he is credited for the screenplay and the idea behind the film there's a man named john battista musetto he only has one writing credit which is this but he also receives editing credit for this film so he was doing double duty. The fourth writer was Paolo Lombardo, born in 1941. It looks like he's uh, either still alive or his death has not been properly reported. He has nine writing credits, including one film that might be of interest to us. It's called The Devil's Lover, starring Rosalba Neri. So. Yay. That just made my watch list. Uh, the producers, in addition to Antonio Walter Manley, there was a credit for a man named Christian Marvel. Uh, but here in this film, he's under the pseudonym Guido Nart. There is no other bio information, and this is the only credit. Antonio Walter Manley did when he was a producer for 13 uh, mostly science fiction and horror type picks so of the people i've mentioned so far he seems to have the most uh, experience with film the locations obviously most of this film the exteriors were shot in venice but i found out that most of the interiors were shot at Cheria Studios in Trieste, and the sound was recorded in CDS Studios in Rome. And Trieste is not very far from Venice. It is uh, as far east as you can go in northern Italy before you hit Slovenia, and it's a large port city, much like uh, Venice. Okay. Uh, so probably only just a couple hours away. 
So this was a very regional project. The music was composed by Marcello Gigante. No biographical information, but he did score 36 films between 54 and 77, including all the usual types of Italian genre cinema. And one title that caught my attention was Frankenstein's Castle of Freaks. And that film was featured in one of the Elvira Mistress of the Dark movie macabre episodes. So people might have caught that there. Cinematography was done by Mario Parapetti. Again, no biographical information. But he does have 14 credits from 52 to 76. uh, All types. Uh, One that stuck out was Django Kills Softly. So the spaghetti western heads might have seen that. The cast. As big as the cast is, there wasn't a whole lot of information about a lot of these people. Yeah. Our protagonist, I assume, uh, the reporter name, uh, the character's name is Andre Rubis. He is played by what is credited in this film as Jin Mart, which, as opposed to being a corner store in a bad neighborhood... <laughs> <laughs> Turns out to be short for Gino Marturano, but he also has, as another alias, or as his real name, Luigi Martocci. Uh, he lived from 32 to 88. He, even though he's the star of this film, he only has two acting credits. This, and I think the year or two before, he was in the Richard Burton, Elizabeth Taylor uh, classic Cleopatra. I think he had a pretty small role in that. Uh, His love interest in this film uh, is a character named Maureen, who is played by Maureen Brown. She also has two acting credits. This was her first, and her last credit was in 1989, where she played a part in a BBC series called Casualty for one episode and she is credited as Lady Tramp. So mm-hmm. I assume that was a small part. Uh, the police commissioner is played by Carlo Russo. No biographical information. Only eight acting credits between 65 and 97. And half of those were TV credits. And just from reading the titles, I could tell that half of those acting credits were in films with Venice in the title. So I assume he didn't stray very far from home. The part of the uh, Marshal Oshira, the police marshal, uh, was played by Alcide Gazzotto. Again, no biographical information. Two acting credits, including this and Una Sporca Guerra, the other film uh written and directed by Dino Tavella. Uh, The part of Nicky Schwartz, or Professor Schwartz, as he's known in this film, was played by Elmo Caruso. Again, no bio info. Two acting credits, this being his final one, the year before he was in a film called Love Factory. 
the part of his aunt in the film. Uh, her name's Catherine Schwartz. Uh, she's played by Paola Vacari, and this is her only credit in IMDb, and there is, again, no biographical information. Now, here's something I thought was slightly amusing. The only other listed character in the credits, I mean, there's a list of all these uh, actors and actresses, quote-unquote, that were in the film, but most of them were not matched up with the character name. Uh, so that was all of them except this last one, who's credited as the first victim. That actress's name is Anita Todesco. She has 49 acting credits, ending in 1968 in a film called Killer Without a Face, which starred Lawrence Tierney, that some people might know from Reservoir Dogs. He played Joe, uh, the boss of the, the heist. Oh, okay. So I thought it was interesting that the most experienced actress who had been in anything somebody might have heard of, besides maybe Cleopatra, she probably had the shortest uh, screen time in the whole film. Yeah. Uh, ironically. Hmm. And that's it for the production notes that I have. I'm assuming, I shouldn't assume anything, but you live pretty close to Venice, close enough that you've probably been there before, right? Yeah, I live about an hour train ride away from Venice, and I've been there probably four or five times over okay. the years. Cool. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that, um, you know, because I, one of the things that I initially concluded about this film on the Jalo score website is that I'm not sure whether a cleaned up, you know, Blu-ray release of this would do it harm or do it good because um, I think it would probably open up the, the outdoor scenes so that it was actually visually more visually appealing i guess because mm -hmm. the version that you watch it's all kind of muddy and flat um but then again those scenes that are supposed to bring about like the horror movie feeling um they might not look so scary in you know in 4k or something so um i don't know which direction the film should go in if you've if you've seen the dvd version i think you would like it more or for those of you who mm -hmm. haven't ever seen it, like that fidelity seems to be right on the money as far as um, to, you know, to enhance the, the kind of trashy appeal of the film that comes from this time period. You know what I mean? Like it, that's, it's, it's, it's clean enough as a DVD, I think, <laughs> but I don't know. I guess it all depends on, like I said, if the, if the outdoor shots are, the reason I bring this up, I guess, is because the other thing I read in the book is that we just reviewed earlier is that um, one of the reasons why the films kind of changed after World War II in Italy, especially when you get into 60s and 70s, is because something about um, tourism had been like opened up to Italy and they were trying to promote, 
you know, the jet set life. Yeah. At the, at this time period, I don't know how, you know, I had never read that or heard of that before, but there's a lot of like travel log type elements in a lot of these Jalo films. And I don't know if that was one of the reasons that they did it that way. I'm, I really don't know. But speaking of tourism, there's a lot of times I'm watching this film and they're showing people uh, either riding gondolas along the canals or swimming in the canals. When I first came here, uh, let's see, 12 and a half years ago, and we started, uh, well, we went to Venice for the first couple of times. The very last thing you would want to do is get in the water at <laughs> Venice. Okay. It, uh, well, okay. I kind of had a crappy, uh, rip of the film. I don't think it was DVD quality. Right. But the water looked almost as disgusting in what I saw watching this movie as it did in real life. It's, <laughs> it was just like a greenish brown. And I don't know if it's hyperbole or a joke or somebody just pulling my leg, but I've heard that if for some reason you fall into the water in Venice, you have to take a series of shots when they pull you out. <laughs> and believe it. I think a lot of that was due to the amount of sewage created by tourism. Yeah. And one thing that happened during the pandemic when everything was locked down, uh, Venice was basically a fortress. And by the time the quarantines were lifted, I was hearing stories about the water in Venice canals being blue again. <laughs> and pictures that people had taken from some of the bridges, uh, you know, people that lived there of dolphins swimming through the canals for the wow. first time in a century <laughs> or something like that. And since the quarantine and vaccines and everything have kind of loosened up travel, Venice has pretty much kept the door to Venice as a tourist destination half closed because they do not want to return to the way it was before the lockdown. Wow. So if you come to Italy and you want to visit Venice, you have to get on the website of their tourist board and make reservations and pay a tax mm. for which days you want to come. Wow. And it's limited. So it seems like they don't want to ever go back to the place. And it wasn't just the sewage and uh, the dirty water. As they talk about in this film, the erosion and how it's sinking. You know, they've been saying that for a hundred years, but it's still there. Yeah. But a lot of that is due to too much tourism and the the pollution that goes along with it. Um, there are th maybe three Jolly I can think of that took place in Venice. This one, uh, Who Saw Her Die? And I know there's a third one and I can't remember what it is off the top of my head. I know there's Giallo of Venezia, which is a later one. Oh, yeah, that's which true. Which is particularly yeah. sleazy. Uh, yeah, there are a lot of uh, cool Italian films that are shot in Venice. And hell, even if you're just a like a James Bond fan, 
I think there's three or four James Bond movies that have shot in Venice. And part of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade was shot in Venice, too. Oh, really? Yeah. I don't know where they... I don't know, was that um, portrayed in the film, too, that they were in Venice? Because I don't remember that movie. I don't know if they actually went to Venice or if they filmed somewhere uh, in Venice to make it look like something else. Because sometimes they no, do that. No, they were actually in Venice. Oh, okay, in the story. Yeah. I mean, Spielberg has a budget to shoot wherever the hell he wants. Right. <laughs> but um, the scenes where um, Indiana Jones is in the library and they're trying to find out where the tomb of the... The Crusader guy was. Oh yeah, yeah, okay. And there's that scene in the library where he discovers that there's a giant X on the floor. Right. That's in Venice. And then there's the fight outside where he's on the boat, and one of the the guardians of the Holy Grail is like trying to stop him from finding out where it is. And they're fighting in a boat, and there's like a giant ship in front of them with the propellers spinning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. Yeah, that's all Venice. Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, definitely not the same budget as uh, Indiana Jones. (laughs) (laughs) The Embalmer, 1965, The Deep Dive, Here We Go. Uh, One of the things that I wrote about in the Jalo score is that I really love the introduction to this film. Um it starts off with like immediate action. You know, you get this sinister music. There's a slab on the table. Some hooded figure has got test tubes and uh, there's a body standing petrified in a cabinet behind him. Um, and then he walks out of the room, kind of slumbers down this hallway. It looks like a dungeon. Um, there's skulls on the ground, right? Um, mm-hmm. And then they roll the credits. And then right after, and the credits are kind of really nothing to remember. Um, but after the credits, we got the statues ringing the bell. And then we go into this immediate scene of let's establish these two people. They're going to separate and one of them's going to walk home alone. And it's just... You know, and then you know, the the next part of the movie is this the, the the guy who we've already seen as a shroud. He kind of is now wearing um, like scuba gear, and he's uh, descending into the depths of some sort of cellar that has water. And um, then finally, we get the the first murder, which really isn't a murder scene. There really aren't any murder scenes in this. It's ma- it's basically, you know, the, the killer jumps out behind something and um, he puts his hand over the victim's mouth and they jump into the canal. Um, but I really enjoyed how they started it all off. It was like, you know, we don't, it, it, a lot of the newer or later Jolly, you know, they start out with a longer introduction with a lot of credit sequences and stuff. And this was just like, Went right into the beginning scene. So, yeah, I mean, again, really nothing too much to talk about with this, except for the fact that, you know, this seems kind of like an early, too early in the 
history of, of slashers and, and horror movies that you would have kind of like, it's like a stalk and a stalking murder sequence, like right in the beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. And um, it's kind of early for its time. Don't you think? I mean, it just seems like, you know, the woman separating from her man and walking home and, just all of the build up to the the stalking sequence it's it's more of a slasher thing and a in a you know obviously you'll see it in the 70 and 71 when the jalo starts doing it but like this seems kind of ahead of its time in that regard i don't know cuz like this this film looks like a gothic you know horror movie at least the way it starts right yeah it definitely has gothic elements to it and there's kind of a mad scientist uh, thread thrown in there the way he's mixing those chemicals and um it's it's pretty macabre the way he seems to have this woman's body in a case and uh it seems like you know, the rest of the movie, he's going to be filling in those other empty boxes. So there's kind of a very understated necrophilic vibe to it. They never come outright and say it, but yep. I mean, the guy wants to preserve their beauty and keep them for himself and uh, for what? <laughs> but they don't really go there, even though it's... For me, it was kind of difficult not to think about that. Um, and like you said, there there's no slashing. We only see blood maybe once in the whole film. Or twice, if you count somebody snooping around looking for clues. Yeah. Um, the The method of killing, I think, is pretty horrific. Because, like you said, you don't really see the kill, but... He grabs a girl, he's got scuba gear on, she doesn't, and he grabs her and jumps with her into the canal. Right. And we know that he had to swim in and out of his lair, and the next thing we know, uh, she'll be on the table being embalmed. Right. So, apparently, she she drowned. Yeah, he held her down there. He could breathe and she couldn't. And Yeah, so that is kind of a horrific thing that they're right. implying there. Yeah. Yeah, and that's not a fun way to go. But it's also a way to go that you can't really film on a shoestring budget. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Unless you have uh, Avatar money and then you can show people getting you know, struggling and fighting underwater. Well, and it also propels the story a bit because... Bodies are not really showing up. It's just girls are going missing. And that's what keeps the police from really following the hints that Andrea is on to. Right. Um, So that, you know, that's kind of, I, I don't know if that was done on purpose, but it seems like, you know, it's pretty convenient that you can create the ambiguity as with regard to this, the, the case that's going on and say, you know, like this is a tourist town and college girls come here all the time. And, you know, the commissioner just keeps saying, Hey, don't worry about it. She's, you know, she left. No big yeah. deal. She left. She's gone. Cause they don't have anything to, 
you know, they don't have any bodies, you know, to, to back it up. So, um, pretty, yeah, pretty interesting idea for the kill method. And again, this kind of, you know, a year before you can say blood and black lace comes out. And one of the things that is memorable about that film is the way that each murder is set up and it's got a, you know, like a sequence to it. And I don't, I don't want to say a theme, but there's, you know, common filmatic and design elements that surround each one of those murders. Yeah. And so like the, just not so much that in this film, they had those murder set pieces, but they paid attention to enough about, you know, the killing uh, in this movie to, to say, hey, they're thinking about it. Just like the, the, like Blood and Black Lace, you know, thought a lot about how to, you know, orchestrate well, I think in, these murder pieces, you know. I think in Blood and Black Lace, there was a lot more variation among right. the kills. Here, except for, uh, well, we'll get to it eventually, but it, at least the first two or three kills are just kind of carbon copied. Mm -hmm. you know, somebody's walking down the sidewalk. Uh, and I have in my notes, uh, every time there's a kill, I have yoink splash. And I have that in there like five <laughs> times. Yoink splash. <laughs> yoink splash. Yeah. And so uh, for this one, uh, okay. Um, Oh, the killer is swimming through the canal with a flashlight. Right. And that, I mean, I get it. They have to show us that the killer's in the water. And if you're filming a canal at night, it gets very boring. And <laughs> how else are you going to know there's a killer in the water? Right. <laughs> but it doesn't take Sherlock fucking Holmes to figure out if there's a, a light <laughs> coming through the water of the canal. <laughs> you don't need to have your grandpa reading glasses on to see that there's somebody's coming up out of the water. Yeah. Um, but the okay, only so two she, people that ever noticed it were the two drunks of the town. Right. That nobody believes. Yeah. <laughs> and, so that's how um, he can keep going. And as she's walking, uh, she hears something, she turns around or she kind of looks over and says, Oh, it was nothing. And then they show you, that our mastermind killer knocks over a trash can with his flipper because <laughs> right. he's walking around up there on the sidewalk with, with his flippers going and uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that, that comes up at least twice again later in the film. It's like, dude, take off the fucking flippers. Yeah. Or, uh, <laughs> but, um, well, the but except for the execution, which I think they could have, I don't know. Again, I don't know how you would show that a killer's approaching from the water at night unless you put a light on him. So, right. But um, I think the concept is very interesting and something that I hadn't seen before. You know, death by yoink splash. Yeah. And uh, it's just the execution was... Uh, could have used a little tightening up. Right. But so far, I'm into it. 
I mean, I'm, I'm into it through the whole film, but uh, I think it's a cool idea. And the first time I watched this, I couldn't wait to see what happens next. Yeah, and you know, um, I'm watching the first, first. Um, what did you call it? Yoink plop. <laughs> yoink splash. Yoink splash. <laughs> I'm. I just watched the first yoink splash, and one of the things that I think they figured out how to do better as these movies got made is like she's walking, she's in the middle of the frame, and you see him before she sees him. And the way the camera moves, it's not a jump scare at all. Mm-hmm. Now, it may have been a jump scare in 1965 for somebody to see just a figure in the darkness jump out and grab a woman and real quick. But I mean, I don't know. The way that they edit and position the people or the actors to do a jump scare the, way, the right way, I, I don't think it was there for this one. I don't know. Um, and they're all kind of like that. It really doesn't get spooky, scary to me until the end. Oh, yeah. And then it gets it's ridiculously silly, which we'll get to. <laughs> At least for me, it got silly. Um, yeah. Well, I wonder if we're talking about the same point towards the end. <laughs> we'll see. Because that definitely got my attention. It's like the entire first hour of this film lulled me into this <laughs> sense of uh, complacency and almost boredom. And then uh, something really cool, I thought, happened <laughs> that I sat upright in my seat and my jaw dropped. And I was like, oh, shit. Like, it was, it reminded me kind of uh, in Terra Bang, right? <laughs> you're watching along and you think, yeah, yeah, yeah. What else? Yeah, yeah. And then, oh, fuck. Something else. But, uh, yeah, it only had one something else instead of like six in a row. But Well, it may not be the, but it, this may not be the thing I'm thinking of, but. When we get there, we'll yeah. see. It's, yeah, it's, okay. it's towards the end. So, um, right, yeah. Anyway, uh, after this first murder is over, we get introduced to some of the characters. Um, they have a lot of filler in this film of various scenes within a printing press and within an editor's office of people walking around and printing papers and typing things up. Um, yeah. they, they use it like maybe three or four times in the movie. And I'm, I'm assuming it's just to stretch out the runtime to get it to the minimum runtime it needed to be. Cause it's only 87 minutes. Yeah. Uh, so Andrea is the newspaper reporter and they've already, I guess, got one newspaper article out about a girl missing, which is the one probably that we saw already petrified. Right, And so the city kind of already knows that there's something going on because the press has been talking about the girls going missing. And uh, Andrea is is talking to, I think this guy is a detective in the beginning or something like that. Some sort of lower yeah, level. Yeah, this guy movie. is, he's listed in the credits as Marishalo, which is Marshall. Oh, okay. So over here, that would be like a captain or lieutenant, but he's a detective. And his boss is the commissioner. We right. haven't seen him yet. But throughout this film, it seems like our star reporter, Andrea, and this detective, Marshall, uh, I think his name is Shiro or something, uh, seem to have some kind of 
working respect for each other and uh we'll we'll see that come to fruition a little bit later okay okay yeah i um and i i don't know have you noticed that too maybe i'm making connections where there aren't any but um a lot of these films and not necessarily just the protos but even you know the ones in the classic period a lot of times introduce two different levels of police and Mm -hmm. maybe the lower level is kind of like on the side of our amateur detective or helping him out. Like if you, or if you remember cat of nine tales, um, the guy who worked for the newspaper was friends with one of the cops and um, they were working together. He would give him information and said, you know, that it's unofficial and off the record or whatever. And um, in this one, it's the same thing. Like, the commissioner, he doesn't want to talk to Andrea, as we'll see, you know, in the next couple of scenes that come up. He doesn't even want to even talk about that there may be something going on with the missing girls. Um, but the other guy is kind of meeting him on the side and helping him out. And I think his his whole character's theme, and I think maybe this is why what he says at the very end makes sense, is that... Um, He's got this thing where he's like, look, I'll believe anything you tell me is possible, uh, but I'm not going to do anything unless there's proof. Um, Right. And like he's he's really on Andrea's side. He doesn't really have anything against him. He's like, you know, you got no evidence. So what am I supposed to do? But right. So that's the two different levels of police. And like I said, I think I remember that theme coming up over and over again in in Jalo. Mm hmm. Well, in this particular case, I wonder if the commissioner doesn't want to believe that there's a serial killer because he might be kind of like the the mayor of that town in Jaws. You know, Venice is a very tourism-based economy. Right. There's not a lot. I mean, there's some small artisanal uh, industries happening. And we'll see a nice little uh, travel log part of that but if you start saying people are you know especially young women are disappearing and we we can't even find their bodies and there's only so many ways in and out of venice it's not like you put them in the back of a truck and blend (laughs) in with all the other trucks on the interstate and you're in a shallow grave in montana by the end of the week you know right uh if that gets out then who's going to go to venice so that kind of reminded me of that character mm. in Jaws who, uh, no, they just ran away, blah, 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 and got my head in the sand until I'm forced to confront this. It's like he doesn't want to. Right. And the other cop is more open to the idea, but instead of just being gung-ho on the side of Andrea, he's still like, yeah, okay, maybe, but you got to show me something more. Right. Right. So. Well, and you know they use they use that same theme in Jaws three, where Lewis Gossett Jr. Uh, had just opened a Marine World theme park. Uh-huh. <laughs> he didn't want uh, he didn't want the tourism to go away either, so they decided to keep the shark, and things went really bad from yeah. there. And they were all done in three D. In three D, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> a great movie. Uh, anyway, uh, so there was one thing, you know, I think after 
Andrea meets the one cop in the coffee shop. We go back to the killer again yeah. in the dungeon, and we now see that he's got two bodies. And he, he does he say? Oh, he says, "How lovely you are." So he he does this little voiceover thing. It's never really established if he's saying it out loud or for hearing what's inside his head because he doesn't, you know, ever see his lips move throughout the movie. It's just shadows and the back of them. Um, no. But what I thought was cool about the scene was they give you a little tiny hint where he's going up the spiral steps of the dungeon and then it immediately kind of cuts to him and it transitions like right to left with some curtains and it's another set of footsteps. But now he's in an area that looks a lot more sophisticated and new and, and proper. So it's like, they're giving you this tiny little hint that he walks among, you know, the people. Yeah. To a certain extent. And I thought it was cool. Well, okay. Just one thing. Now there are two women in the boxes, right? Yeah. And one is the one that we saw from before. But now there's a blonde to the left of her. And that does not look like the woman that he just yoink splashed off of the the street before. Hmm. So maybe they just had a you know, play dead mannequin roll call or something one day that went a little bit wrong. Well, but- I have to go back. I had it up on the screen for a second, but then... I lost it. I'm trying to get it back, but I'm trying to remember, did they also show the slab and maybe was there somebody on the slab or was it just the the two in the cab? Oh yeah. Wait, wait, wait. That's right. You're right. Okay. So there's somebody on the slab. Yeah. And I assume that's the fresh one that we saw him pull into the canal. Right. Right. So she's hooked up to the drip drip. Yeah, and now there's a blonde. So it's like they cheated us out of one of the yoink splashes that we didn't get to see. Well, in the opening scene, you don't see the girl that's under the slab. So I'm assuming that's who's number two. And the first one is the one that was there already. Okay. Does that make sense? This guy's... I guess it... uh... I'm going to go back and see what the first one looked like in the opening scene. Because I think the blonde, I mean, or the lighter haired woman. Yeah. In the, you know, about 40 seconds, 40 seconds into the film. uh, 50, no, it's less than that. About 35 seconds into the film, they should. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the, there's one girl in the cabinet and we know there's somebody on the slab, but they don't show you what her face looks like because she's just covered. You just see her feet. And then the next time we're at the uh, the monster's lair, there's two in the boxes and one on the slab. So I think that's how it worked. In the opening scene, okay. we saw one that was done and one being worked on. Then he went and got a third. Right. Okay. She's and on the slab. She's on the slab now. Yeah. It's like how they they're they're telling a lot of the story by just changing the things that are in the scene, kind of. Because a lot of stuff has happened. Like the last thing you know is the girl got pulled into the canal, right? As a viewer, and the next and the next thing that's happening is the next day. Now there's two people in the slab. We assume there's a third one being worked on. 
So the killer had a, uh, did a lot of stuff since we last saw him. Okay. And, okay, so he approaches the two that are in the box, right? Yep. And he starts walking away. He starts kind of sliding off the screen to the left. And we see his shadow as he's coming around the oh, corner yeah. somewhere. And he has his scare hair hands out. <laughs> like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's not talking to anybody. I mean, he's not. There's nobody there. But it's like he's just tripping on how evil he is. Yeah. You know, with his hands out and his fingers spread out like, ah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like who the fuck are you doing that for? <laughs> himself, he's doing it for himself. Yeah, yeah, and like you said, it, it you see his feet going up the steps, and then swipe. You see feet walking across a tile floor of uh, some public. Oh, that's the department store. Yeah. Okay. Cool. And then you know we we you know I think it was cool how they did this. So they. They introduced Andrea, but we didn't really see much of him yet. We've only, you know, he was in that one scene so far. And then we're back to the killer again. And yeah. now he's in the department store and they do this thing that I don't know if Argento, you know, may have watched this film and said, I want to do something like this. But the whole idea of the killer's next victim in the movie uh, they freeze frame it and they play this kind of tense, you know, horrific music for a second. And, you know, yeah. obviously this is an indicator to the audience that she's next. Um, and Argento was doing that in Bird with the Crystal Plumage. And, uh, you know, this came, this came a lot earlier. I don't know if, I mean, Hitchcock was probably doing something similar to this uh, as well, probably before Monster of Venice came out. But I liked how they... You know, they, they're not, they're not being subtle here. Like, they're just like, ding, you're next. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that too. I thought it was a cool touch. Well, it makes me wonder how much better Dino Tavella would have become if he had lived longer than to have just made two films. Yeah. So. Yeah. it's a good point. Now I'm trying to remember, is this the second murder where, yeah, this is. She goes into her apartment, and you think something bad's going to happen to her right then. Mm -hmm. But then she comes back out, and she goes. She said something in the department store about I'm going on a boat race, right, or a boat ride with my friends. Yeah. And he follows her home, but we see that she gets inside safely. Right. So. The first time I assumed, oh, well, she got away. But wait, she was freeze-framed. She must die. Yeah. And it turns out that even though he didn't get a chance to nab her, he did find out where she lived. And I think he kind of just camped out waiting for her to come back. And when she came back, uh, he follows her until he gets a chance to yoink splash number two. Yoink Splash number two. Some, yep. Yep. But before Yoink Splash number two, after she gets off the boat, we're, <laughs> we're back to the lair one more time to see uh, three uh, compartments filled with bodies now. And right. then we go right back to the... <laughs> I like the way they edited that stuff and, together. And he's doing the crazy hands. Yeah, you he's see doing the, the crazy hands. The crazy hands. 
in case we think he's just a, a disembodied pillowcase floating around <laughs> in the casting shadows. Well, this killer kind of has this weird sense of humor, I think. Oh, uh, he's a funny guy. Yeah. <laughs> the thing that I laughed at the hardest, it happens at the end. And I'm wondering if it's the thing that we both thought of at the same time. But we haven't gotten there yet. So (laughs) anyway, uh, he descends back into the underground in his scuba gear. And, um, you know, we have another one of these stalking sequences. There's a there's a cat in the alleyway. And the next thing you know, you know, he's doing the yoink splash again. And the cat runs away. Yeah. Um, And this just just watching this now, it. It makes me think of other films where they cut to like they're in the middle of a murder and they cut to something else just to kind of release the tension of the murder happening just for a split second and then bring you back to it again. Like I know they did that a lot in say if you watch a Friday the 13th movie, they they start whatever the murder action is and then they cut away and then when they cut back. You know, maybe they added some appliance to make it look like, you know, the knife came through the neck or some other thing. But this is like, I'm noticing that that looks like a technique that was used here. And I wonder, again, as I'm watching this, I guess what keeps coming to my mind is um, how influential some of the techniques being used by the director are and it seems like there's a lot of things that I've noticed in, in this movie that get repeated now. Um, yeah. I don't know if um, this director invented them or you know if they came before him and he just decided to use the ideas too. But you know, Mario Baba was doing this kind of stuff too, I guess. He was kind of inventing new ways of telling the story with edits and with camera movements and stuff. But at any rate, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Let's see. Where am I? We're back into the uh, commissioner's office. We got somebody taking notes. We got the uh, the marshal on the phone, and he's. Um, I guess he's questioning the the guy who was in the boat with the girl. Right? Is that who that is? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the commissioner's sitting at his desk. The marshal is asking questions, and Steno boy is working his fingers off over there. Uh, yeah, and then okay, so then Andre Andrea calls uh, to talk to the commissioner, and the commissioner mm-hmm. basically says, "Just leave me alone." Yeah. Okay, so then we're in the um, the newspaper office, and Andrea is. They give him a little bit of character here. You get the sense that he's a straight shooter. He's clean cut. He's a hardworking newspaper guy. And I can compare him to, to, you know, I could describe him that way because you compare him to the other guy who came in who basically (laughs) has got a, you know, it looks like he's half drunk. He's got a beard and he's like, I don't know how you do all this, Andrea. So, you know, he, this guy's the hard boiled, you know, um, jaded reporter and and andrea is just like you know this guy's too cool for school it's like mr brady he's got a black leather jacket on that he probably lifted off his dead ss uncle 
and <laughs> he's wearing black shades. I almost expected that when they showed him in profile, I almost expected him to have a ponytail sticking out the back of his head. Yeah. He's got a mustache. He's always got a cigarette. And when he smiles, you notice that one of his front teeth, well, one of the first four teeth yeah. on the side, is blacked out. Yeah. <laughs> I want to see this guy's movie. See him follow the uh, the yeah, case, case of the, the missing Jack J and B bottle or something. I see that would be a felone. That would be the subgenre yeah. of uh the embalmer. Yeah. <laughs> Spin-off. Maybe that's the the, the equivalent of felone. Yeah, um, we're exploring new terroir. <laughs> <laughs> so after uh, Andrea leaves the office they have this one shot of the hallway that they use like three or four more times just as a transitional shot, I guess, to let you know, hey, mm-hmm. we're back in this 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 place now. Um, and Andrea, all I have in my notes here is that Andrea meets with the commissioner. Um, Andrea is saying maybe there's a sex maniac. Uh, the commissioner. Well, like, he meets with the publisher. Oh, right? yeah, that's right. I missed that part. Yeah. So yeah. he meets with the editor first. Yeah, that the was the editor. scene I was telling you about where there's curtains everywhere. <laughs> yeah, and there's a a light like right outside his window that's blinking on and off. <laughs> so those are the window curtains. Yeah, actual, yeah, actual yeah. window curtains, but the wall behind <laughs> him is also a curtain. Right, and right behind the editor's head, it's like a solid wall of curtains. <laughs> but somebody hung a picture up in the middle of it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> This scene, uh, this this particular location is used later in the weirdest way um, towards the end. There's a scene where they're in that office, but nobody who's talking is on screen. And I don't mm-hmm. know if you noticed that. When we get to it, I'll, I'll show you. Okay. Well, um, I noticed another scene in another room where there was a section of curtain up against the wall, I guess. And... A framed picture hanging in the middle of the curtain. And I'll point that back out when we get to it. It's towards the end, also. But I'm getting crazy interior decorating ideas here. I know, <laughs> absolutely. So this is when Andrea meets with the commissioner. Um, nothing really transpires here. We just kind of continue to see what the relationship is like between the three of them and. How he really doesn't want to do anything to help. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, the next scene. uh, So, Andrea, I guess Andrea goes down and talks a little bit more to the. uh, The marshal. Yeah, the marshal. And then we meet the the two porters, I guess they are, that hang by the bridge. I think one is just a street sweeper and the other is a porter. Okay. And they, this is what they do for a living. And it's clear that, you know, when they're not doing this, they're basically just standing around drinking wine. Mm-hmm. Um, and while we're introduced to these two, who basically just establish themselves as the town drunks, um, a large group of college girls show up as tourists. And um, one of the, the, the porter guy runs over to see if he can help. And they don't want him to take any of their bags or anything. And then Andrea runs out to see if he can help. Um, And 
it looks like wherever they were trying to go was really far from where they were. <laughs> yeah. Like they, they had to take so- a very scenic boat ride halfway around to Venice. <laughs> and he was like, oh, I'll take you there. I was on my way there myself. Oh, bullshit, dude. <laughs> well, listen, if he believes that there's a sex maniac that are uh, killing young girls, why not just hang out with a bunch of young girls and see what happens? <laughs> hey, all I was sp- trying to do was protect these uh, supple nubiles from the throes of the theorized serial killer <laughs> i had no choice but to take a long lunch and <laughs> ride a boat with these 18 year olds <laughs> i have no story for, for the evening edition but don't worry mm-hmm. more, maybe he's in just an investigative reporter he doesn't actually have to you know he doesn't have a deadline every day so he's just yeah. working on something um the next scene after the little scenic route um is uh, a, probably the most important scene in the whole movie. Um, but for now, we don't know it. You know, we just oh. know that we've moved to these four people sitting outside. Or no, is it four? Yeah. It's yeah. the commissioner and some sort of clergyman uh-huh. who's waving his hand around. And the third guy, I don't think we ever see again. And the fourth guy, who's like the youngest. He's got lighter colored hair. Um, Mm -hmm. And I guess they're in a discussion about the missing girls. And um, he kind of has this weird, the guy that, the guy that we'll see again, besides the commissioner, he kind of has this weird reaction when he's talking, not weird, but he just kind of talks a little bit different. Um, I forget what he says though. Uh, well, let's see. They're discussing the case. And I noticed that when the priest was talking, because I think he only has like really one speaking part, but he moves his hands yeah. like like side to side and then up and down, <laughs> like he's blessing the wine or something. Yeah, that's what I thought it but was. But he's talking about something mundane. Like, all oh, these you know, crazy world, blah, 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 these girls disappearing. But it's like just reflexively he's doing the sign of the cross. <laughs> right, right. Well, yeah. I mean, he, he's allowed to go through the motions. He probably makes the sign of the cross like oh, 20 times a day. Yeah, he probably does it in his sleep. <laughs> and then um, and then the commissioner, ah, oh, shit, I just stopped it instead of pausing. I hate when I do that. All right, hang on. And he says, ah, the world is mad. All right. Okay. It's a mistake. These girls just ran away. Okay. If there's a criminal involved... When he turns up, we're bound to get him. And then the dude sitting between him and the clergyman, he's in the center of the frame, the guy with the mustache yeah, and the hair. He says something like, um, he's like, I think he's, uh, wait, wait, when he trips up. He 
He might be murdering them under your nose and you wouldn't suspect it. As he says that, he's doing like the jerk off motion with his fist. <laughs> Once yeah, yeah, second yeah. Of- yeah, I just saw that. <laughs> <laughs> and I wouldn't have noticed that if I didn't notice a clergyman doing the sign of the cross. Yeah, you're watching like, oh, everybody's wow, hands. Okay. There's all sorts of hand stuff going on. <laughs> 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 This guy's going around killing people and you don't even jerk, 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 suspect it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, That is a kind of a weird hand signal to use at that moment. But it just goes to show you that, you know, I'm sure whatever they said in Italian was different. Uh, I, yeah, I hope so. (laughs) I've seen a million different Italian hand gestures. The (laughs) joke is if you want an Italian to shut up, handcuff him. Right, right. (laughs) Behind his back, you know. But, I, you know, I think what you're getting at, the important part of the scene, is what this hotel manager says. Right? Yeah, I think he's, he at? says something like, um, he could be among us, he could be, you know... He might be murdering them right under your nose. And then, well, somebody else says that. He might... No, that's what the, the jerk-off guy says. Right. He might be murdering them right under your nose. Hard... Well, quick cut to the hotel manager who says a few things, but then he says the guilty one might be someone right here amongst us. And okay. You're suggesting that perhaps the guilty one might be someone right here amongst us. Uh And not to like pat myself on the back or anything, but the first time I saw this, I kind of had him pegged, but not at this point. And since you already spoiled it for everybody, like right. within two minutes of starting this podcast. But I didn't uh, spoil it because we didn't, we don't know yet that he's a hotel manager, but we will. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, we're going to find out in 10 minutes. Yes, we will. Um, and when you go through the film the second time, and you know, it's him. It, it could only really be him. I think because everybody, every other suspect is either dead or, you know, accounted for. And then you start saying, well, okay, if every other suspect is dead or accounted for, then we, we know that it's a mystery because if it wasn't, we would have seen his face from the beginning of the movie. So it's gotta be somebody that's had an appearance on screen because it wouldn't make any sense to hide the identity of someone that was never on screen in the first place. So if you, yeah. if you actually like start crossing characters off your list, once you realize that it's not them, then you know it's pretty obvious who it is. Um, but there's a couple of other people, like the two bellhops, I guess, in the uh, in the hotel that were painted mm-hmm. as as you know possible, um, possibly guilty. Yeah, we, there's we red herrings for sure. Yeah, and. Uh, you know, we see the killer in the lair doing his crazy hands and talking to these uh, these women in the boxes. It's one thing to not show his face. I mean, I've seen films where they just, you never get above the shoulders when you see him on the screen. Right. Uh, sometimes they always have their back. And you know, here they put him in one of those spooky uh, black robes. And... That's cool enough. But then, towards the end, you see something else that would have uh, 
would have done the same thing as only seeing him from the back with the hood on. Yeah. And I think that's another cool little thing about this film. A nice little touch that Tavella does. And I'll, I'll expand on that later. Okay. I think you're right. Well, when we uh, next move on to the next, uh, excuse me, when we move on to the next scene, the girls have arrived at the hotel and mm-hmm. um, they don't go, that's not when they go shopping yet. That's a different scene. But we do meet up with three new characters, the two bellhops, and of course, uh, Mr. Torre, who we saw in the previous mm-hmm. scene sitting at the table um with the other three important people of the town obviously and um he is the hotel manager he is he identifies himself as the hotel manager eventually uh before uh before they all go into their rooms and whatnot so we have three new characters here and um the main character is miss uh miss marie he calls her or is her name marie I think it was Maureen okay. because the actress's name is Maureen. So I think they just kind of kind of lazy about it. I mean, it might be Marie and I'm just hearing it wrong, but uh, I have her down as Maureen. Maureen. But okay. on the IMDb credits, her character is listed as Miss Morris. And the second time watching through this, I didn't hear anybody call her Miss Morris. So Yeah, it might have been in a different language, but... yeah. Yeah, that's where I got confused. Okay, so Maureen, I guess she's out of college. She's kind of the tour group leader. And Mm -hmm. um, there's a bunch of other girls there, but the one that clearly, to me, stands out in the group is Grace, who we see a a little bit later on in the movie. Um, She's definitely got like a model kind of look to her, like her face anyway. Um, Yeah, she definitely stands out. From the crowd, yeah, I thought. So they, uh, so the bellhop um, puts her on the first floor, um, and says there aren't any more rooms on your floor. And then when she walks away, the other bellhop is like, "What the hell are you talking about? There's plenty of rooms on the second floor." And he's like, "Well, I forget what he uses this as an excuse. It's like it doesn't matter. They'll all be together anyway, so don't worry about it." Um, yeah. So he's right away, you know, very obvious about the fact that he's up to something. We just don't know what it is yet. Um, The let's see. Where was the scene where? Oh, right after. (laughs) So the next scene, the (laughs) the hotel manager is feeding all the pigeons in Venice and. (laughs) Just, that was the <laughs> just flocking to was, him. <laughs> yeah, and that apparently is the uh, the time lapse filler right there, because they had to give us time for Andrea to say goodbye to the girls and to leave, and then come back later. Right, right. And the and seriously, the best way they could think to. To kind of gloss over that is to have a guy, and I've seen I've I have walked through St. Mark's Square in Venice many times. 
at least you know, several times each trip I've made there. The last thing you want to wear when you're walking through a crowd of pigeons is a dark suit, okay? <laughs> because you will come out of that fucker looking like a Dalmatian when you're <laughs> done flying and shitting all over you. <laughs> and when I saw that shot of him sitting there, just playing with him, I'm like, I bet they cut it like two seconds before he was caked oh, yeah, in yeah, pigeon yeah. shit. <laughs> Absolutely. But is that because I remember seeing another Jalo, I think it was Who Saw Her Die, where they have like a, a huge flock of pigeons like nearby one of the characters. Is that something that just happens in Venice? Like all the pigeons hang out in one spot and tourists try to feed them and it gets yeah, it goes and, wrong. And because of that, they're used to people feeding them. So they're not afraid of you. Oh, okay. Um Really, the only way they would get out of your way is if you're literally about to step right on top of them. But, like, you see him squatting there. He's surrounded by pigeons on the ground, and they're flying up over him. He probably had a fistful of bird seed that he'd been throwing around before. That's why they're, like, landing on his shoulders and heads. Yeah. They usually don't do that right. unless you have food in your hand. Right. That's but what I figured. Yep. You could walk through that group of pigeons on the ground and they would just kind of part in front of you like the red sea just enough so that you don't step on them but they're not afraid of you and if you do start tossing out bird seed or little chunks of your uh like if you had uh like some kind of breakfast roll with your coffee and you're throwing the crumbs out they're yeah they just flock all over you <laughs> well now do you think that from a thematic standpoint, there was a need for this scene. I mean, it, yes, it's definitely filler and it definitely gives us um, a time lapse so that, you know, we can we can transition to later on in the day. But um, the one thing that I think of is, you know, most psychopathic killers, you know, they relate more to like other species than humans because they're. You know, they, hmm. they're they real nice to animals. You know, they've got a connection with animals or whatever. Um, right. Like, you know, the guy in Silence of the Lambs who raised the moths or something. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so it could be that they're trying to paint a picture of somebody that, you know, you, you'll never suspect till the very end. But um, at the same time, is it important that we not only do we that we know maybe the next scene will answer that question, but he's not in the hotel right now. So if you're, if you've got him pegged as the one in charge or the one that's guilty, um, you're looking for where is he located all the time? And of course, once I think we never see him again after that pigeon scene, like for the entire movie. Um, but if you're trying to keep uh, track of logical, you know, where is he right now stuff? Maybe they wanted to show you that so that, you know, it would be like, okay, I'm, I'm paying attention to his movements and his whereabouts so I can make my case because I think he's the killer, but right. I don't know. That's maybe stretching. I know there is one of the kills. It might be the next one where Andrea is hanging out and then something he, he gets up and leaves for some reason and then the kill happens and then he comes back. And I noticed that every time you see 
Well, I think there's like one scene towards the end where he's wearing a gray suit. Right. But for the rest of the film, even though he changes jackets or sport coats, whatever they are, he has a dark one and then he has one that looks like his uh, might be a white gray, but the pants are always black and the shoes are always black. Right. And of course, we get the close-ups of the killer stepping furtively here and there with his black pants and black shoes. So... I think they're trying to throw a red herring at us that way. Yeah. And like you said, the, the two bellhops, well, the two uh, desk clerks or whatever they're called, could be red herrings. Yeah. Uh, the two guys outside, the, the porter and the street sweeper, maybe, but I never really considered them much at all. No, and it's funny how it's a subtle difference in the way that those characters are portrayed, but I didn't either. It was kind of like they're they're too much of a comic relief characters to actually be serious contenders for, yeah. the, for the murder. Um, yeah, I have them listed in my notes as CRT for comic relief team. Yeah. Because you never find out their names. Right. And, uh, and they don't have they anything. They kind of have a, uh, yeah. like a Laurel and Hardy type thing going on or Abbott and Costello or something right. like that. Right. Yeah, and our, I remember, you know, I can pick out times when Argento used um, those kind of characters in his film. Like in Bird, there was the um, the guy who lived out in the middle of the, of the nowhere who painted the painting. Mm-hmm. Um, he was kind of a weird character. Like you knew it wasn't going to be him that was the murderer because it was so comedic. And then there was um, the guy, the guy who played. Brutus in the Popeye movie. I don't know if you remember the Popeye movie with Robin Williams. Yeah. Um, the guy who played Bluto or Brutus, whichever one you go by, he was right. in Four Flies. He was the guy that lived out by the by the the water, and his um, he was kind of like friends with Roberto, the the main character. And again, you know, that's another one of the guys that. I never ever pegged for the killer because of the way that they get portrayed in the movie. And like, again, these two guys here to bring it back to what we're talking about at the bridge, they're kind of like that. So, um, so the next scene, Andrea comes back and he now meets up with Maureen's two friends who is Catherine Mm -hmm. and, uh, Nikki Schwartz, Mr. Schwartz. Um, right. And they don't really say too much about why they're there or who they know, but it it seems like Mr. Schwartz is some sort of scientist of some sort. He's looking over, or maybe I just remember that because I had seen it before and a while ago. I'm like, yeah, he's the he's the historian or something. He's got a pipe and he's down in his papers and he's not paying attention to what's going on. Well, I think somebody calls him a professor, and then later we find out that he was an archaeologist. Oh, yeah, antiques. Right. Research on the antiques and the facades of Venice. Mm -hmm. Um, And we get a shot of Grace at one point in this little scene. Yeah, she comes over and sits with them for some reason. I guess just to get more screen time. Right. <laughs> but she doesn't seem very interested in hanging out with the, the rest of the young women that are there. 
No, no, she's. And she Grace isn't necessarily like a a suspect. I mean, I I don't think we were at that stage in Jalo where the gender bending kind of thing was happening. I think at this point, you know, this movie. I haven't watched a lot of creamy films, but this kind of reminds me of that style. Yeah. And you know, the fact that it could be Grace is like as because you know she's got some sort of lesbian, you know, thing or some sort of vendetta against other women. I don't know. Um, that would fly, you know, maybe five or six years from now, you know, in 70, 71. But, you know, there's, like you said, really the only motivation to writing her into the scene sitting down is so that she would be on camera more. And she's the best looking one of the college girls, as far as I can tell. So they put her up front, but it doesn't make plot wise. She's the only one of any consequence. Yes. Yeah, that's true. I mean, they put her in the room that they put her in, which we find out soon enough that there's a reason that she was put in that room. Right. To kind of add red herring quality to some other people. Yep. And the fact that she's uh, attractive and, again, if I could spoil everything... She's going to be one of the victims down the road. Right. And compared to the other girls in this group, I think she's the most natural screen presence. Some of these girls look like they they knew somebody whose friend had a neighbor who was making a movie. And do you want to be one of the girls that stands (laughs) around holding a suitcase? Fuck yeah. (laughs) 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 uh, And I think it's a shame that out of the credits for this film or the cast listing on IMDb, one of those female names might be her, but I clicked on everybody on the cast and almost, I mean, literally the people I mentioned during the production notes were the only ones that had any information at all. Right. And three quarters of those, this was the only thing they'd ever done and you never saw them again. Yeah. Or they never did anything uh, in the entertainment business in front of a camera again that we know of. Right. I think that's a shame. Well, um, it got me thinking when you were doing the production notes. Um, you know, I know that Wikipedia, for example, is kind of like a grassroots kind of thing. And if you want to make an article about something, you can. And if somebody disputes it, mm-hmm. then they dispute it. And it's kind of it's self-governing um to a certain extent but imdb i don't know how the information gets populated like at this stage in modern history i'm sure there are registries um that you have to you know be a part of if you want to be in the movies or if you want to act at all you've got to register with whatever the organizations are called i can't think of uh, one right now but um but I don't know what they had back in 65 to keep people um, on the books if they were employed by making a movie. And so I don't know if this entry for the embalmer in IMDb was populated by somebody on the inside who just wanted to fill out the information because it was missing or if this was you know, professionally um, researched and this is as much information as they were able to, to get. 
Well, I went on a site called, um, what is it? Archivio del Cinema Italiano. So the, the Archive of Italian Cinema, which is more like IMDb, but specifically for uh, Italian film. Right. And I looked at their page for this film, and they did not have much information beyond what IMDb had for it. They had this the same... I think one of the things I found out from this was one of the alternate pseudonyms that one of the production people used. But the cast listing was identical to what was on IMDb. Well, wow. Like maybe uh, four or five of the names were actually connected to a specific character. And the ones that were not connected to a character... Uh, had nothing else on their page or no page at all. Right. So it's weird. I mean, I've seen worse movies and more obscure movies than this that that have more yeah. some kind of information. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, the the folks have a conversation about um, Venice and I guess the idea that it's sinking. And Catherine says, why don't you take a sightseeing tomorrow? And um, and Andrea said, yes, um, certainly. But I have to go now. And he leaves. Um, okay. And during that scene, the professor is preoccupied with finding something on a map of Venice. Right. And here is just a little trickle of that information. He kind of points at the map with the the mouthpiece of his pipe and says, it's got to be around here somewhere. And you're not thinking about it the first time through, but it does come up later. Yeah. And actually, the fact that he's pointing at it with his pipe is um, pretty um, significant, I guess, because the pipe mm-hmm. the pipe comes into play later. And I don't know if they, you know, cared that that connection was made somewhere in the film by somebody. But um, yeah, that was interesting. So the very next scene, um, we see the footsteps again. And the thing that's interesting about this is if you pay attention the discussion that was happening in the previous scene with the four characters, the the dialogue is still kind of ringing out in the the audible portion of the film as we cut to the footsteps walking. So you could make the assumption that we're still in the same room in this world. Um, you could also just say, you know, that they... You know, they they transitioned between two scenes and they use the audio as a kind of a bridge to two different locations. But I think you're supposed to think that whoever this person is that's walking and eventually says, can I have a cup of coffee? Um, and you see the person who's standing in front of a bar kind of drop something and come down and look at the camera and we get the freeze frame uh, technique again with the jarring music. So we know that this is another victim. Um, this is I, my favorite freeze frame <laughs> that they do <laughs> with the cleavage. You mean or 
Well, there's two things going on, right? And yeah, you named one of them. Right? There's some cleavage. But from where he's standing and the way she's looking, it looks like she's checking out his junk <laughs> as she's showing us her cleavage. And she's got this like appreciative kind of goofy grin on her face. And I wouldn't have noticed it if they didn't freeze frame it and I had to think about it for a minute. But right. I was like, oh, yeah, cleavage. And then, wait, what is she looking at? What is she smiling at? Oh. Yeah, but, you, but you see, in 2023, we are so jaded by porn that um, it's become part of, like, our daily routine. Like, in 1965, I think the idea is she's looking up at him and she's partly embarrassed because she dropped something. But also, she recognizes who it is. And you're supposed to know by watching this that. She's looking up at his face and saying, I know, you know, I, I'm, you're not a stranger um, because we know it's her boss or at least, you know, we, we assume it's her boss if she's if we're still in the hotel. Um, but, yeah, it, because of the way that the angle is that she had to bend down, she's looking at his where his waist would be. So, yes, you could also argue that she's uh <laughs> She's looking to see if uh, she can make out an outline. Well, okay. Yeah. I guess. As jaded as we are nowadays. <laughs> but I would argue that if I had seen this film in 1981, before my family ever even owned a VCR or had cable TV, I might have thought the same thing. <laughs> or I might have just been too focused on the cleavage to think any more about it. Right. But- because you can't freeze frame things like you can now. So, well, somebody made the decision to freeze frame it right there. Oh, that's true. Yeah, it's in. The, and I uh, would bet yeah. that beyond the cleavage shot, because we don't see any cleavage anywhere else in this film. Right. Even when uh, Grace is doing something later, we don't see that much. No, really. She just acts very sexy, but she doesn't really show anything. Yeah, she's like a commercial for that towel. Or something. Yeah. But... <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, uh-huh. uh, anyway, in the next scene, uh, they go on their sightseeing uh, escapade, escapade. And um, again, more travel log footage for, you know, the sake of Venice tourism or general tourism in Italy. I'm not really familiar with anything significant that is being discussed. Um, but I think they just keep talking about how the nephew's not there. Um, but he knows a lot about the area or he knows about dates. Like, I guess Catherine was saying something about Andrea, not knowing something specific about history and that her nephew could do it or whatever. But, um, then we see grace again and, um, Are they talking? Uh, yeah, she's just talking about how it'd be easy to fall in love in this town, and um, they go for a boat ride. And <laughs> uh, the next thing I have in my notes is um, they walk into this gift shop, and Maureen finds this incredibly racist glass sculpture of it looks like three jazz musicians in blackface in a glass sculpture. Right, done in the uh, Sambo style. 
Yeah. Yeah. And that is on the Isle of Murano, which is world famous for the glass blowing artists that they have there. Okay. And earlier I was talking about how tourism is the main thing for Venice because they don't produce a lot. Uh, the glass blowing of Murano is one of their industries. And there's a, another island out there near that called Burano. And they are world famous for their lace embroidery. Okay. So those are two things to check out if you ever get to Venice. Cool. Anybody. But it, it did sound like a travel log. Because yeah. it's not just that we're seeing these places on the boat. He's like, oh, over there's St. Mark's Square. Yeah. And and then it's like, oh, glass blowing. They're the real glass artists or <laughs> something like that. And it's like, it sounds like one of those videos that the teachers used to make you watch when they didn't feel like giving a lesson. They put in one of those educational videos. Yes. <laughs> well, when I was in school, it was a film strip and somebody was privileged enough to sit in the front of the room. And wait for that mm -hmm. beeping sound so that they could turn the slide to the next one of the film strip. Yeah. I remember that. The kids would beat each other up on the playground to beat the kid <laughs> that gets to push the button. <laughs> yeah. And then as you got older, you realized you didn't want to do that because you had to pay attention. Like, I'm not volunteering for that. I want to sit in the back and fall asleep. Yeah. Like in gym class, I suck so bad at playing sports. The teacher made me be the scorekeeper. <laughs> and at first I thought, fuck yeah, now we don't have to play. And then it was like, oh shit, now I got to watch every time. Wait, was that a goal? And then everybody gets pissed because I don't realize yeah. when somebody scored a point. And <laughs> yeah, it's not anyway. fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You'd rather be like the guy who's out in left field that no one hits to. Um, because you could just, you know, daydream while the, while the game's going on. Uh, they put me in right field, but that was for Little League. Yeah. Yeah. Same thing. I suck at sports. Yeah. <laughs> well, after our little um, escapade, I, I use that word again. After our little uh, tour around uh, the area with Andrea and the college girls, we return uh, to what I would assume is um, some sort of restaurant or nightclub inside the hotel, but I think it has to be, right? Yeah. Or it doesn't necessarily have to be, but it needs to be close by the hotel. Yeah, I guess it's like, uh, yeah, it's either next door or part of the hotel. Right. As a, uh, like a ballroom or dining room or something. Mm-hmm. So we established that that's where Andrea is now, and he's with Maureen. And um, I guess they sit down again with Catherine at the table, and we see the Professor Schwartz there as well. Uh, no, Catherine's not actually there yet. Um, and then we cut to our favorite uh, creepy guy in his basement or catacombs or whatever. And for a split second, they show this spot on the wall where water's leaking through, and that will actually be important later. Uh, this is the first time I noticed it and going through it the third yeah. time. Um, and he goes over to the other side of the wall or the other side of the room. And there's a big, huge electrical switch box. Yes. Mounted to the wall. And I'm thinking, <laughs> I don't know much about Venice. But if I lived anywhere that had a basement, which even the concept of a basement in Venice kind of <laughs> blows my mind. 
<laughs> right. But I would not have a large electrical switch box in the fucker, you know? But well, when, to when, me, that was the scariest part of the whole film. When you're there in Venice, does it feel like you're floating? Or does it just feel like you're walking on solid ground and there's a lot of water everywhere? Oh, no, you're you're on solid ground. It doesn't, and... it doesn't feel any way, shape, or form like... Because no, no. un, under the water, how far down does the the land actually go? I I have no idea, and uh, Wikipedia would. I try me. not to think about it when I'm out there. But... <laughs> <laughs> I would try to think the same thing. It's like when you go uh, to out west and you say, um, "I'm not going to think about the fact that at any point, you know, we could get a crazy, huge earthquake or volcanic eruption." Yeah. Um, there are places, and we'll see in this film a little bit later on, there are places where there's actually dirt and grass growing in Venice. One of the first times I went there, I got lost and got well away from the, the touristy area. And I was in a more just local residential area. And I found a little, uh, a very small square that was in a neighborhood surrounded by like row houses or something that had like a little um, playground area off to one side right. and a basketball court on the other side. And it wasn't one of those places that was trying to draw tourists. It was for the local people that lived there like year round. And there are thousands of them. And it kind of struck me as weird yeah. that, oh, there's dirt and grass here. Yeah. Because the rest of Venice is all just uh, cobblestones and tile floors and things like that. Yeah. Concrete, yeah. as you would expect. Right. Because, I mean, you want to try to keep it as dry as possible. Yeah. Um. Okay. So after we do get, um, let's see. We go back to the shape. And like I said, uh, we were talking about the electrical box. That's what it was. Um, I'm trying to remember, does he still go after the woman he asked for a cup of coffee? Or is she now just one of the people in the cabinet? No, or she's on the slab. Uh, I don't think he's gotten to her yet. Okay. Yeah, I have her as the third victim selected. In the scene in the coffee shop. But he hasn't killed her yet. Oh, he says something about his temple of beauty, right? Yeah, and that strikes me as kind of weird, too. I mean, I understand this is low budget and it's uh, basically community theater with a movie camera. Right. But are these the hottest girls they can find? Because... He keeps going on and on about, oh, you're a beauty. And some of these girls, uh, um, <laughs> not to be cruel. I mean, I'm no, you know, pinup star myself, but I don't know. But you wouldn't I've seen movies yourself. where girls in the background that no of the characters are paying attention to are drop dead. Beautiful. Sure. And here's one that's all about. <clears throat> you're so beautiful. I have to kill you and stuff you with formaldehyde and prop you up. 
somehow in an upright position in a box. <laughs> well, he does. Dead. He does actually say, "I've improved you since you know. Now that you're dead, you're actually better than you were when you were alive. So maybe this is a makeover movie. You know, you're made over by being killed." <laughs> okay. But still, how do you keep dead people to stand up? <laughs> <laughs> and that was something else I noticed in one of the, I think it was when there were only two in the box and there's like a close up of the two women in the box. It looked, if you squint just hard enough and obsessively enough, like a maniac, like I tend to do, <laughs> you notice that they kind of teeter back and forth. They're kind of swaying a little bit. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like watching somebody who's supposed to be dead. Oh, let's see if they breathe. If that chest moves at all, I'm calling <laughs> bullshit on this whole movie. Yeah. And then I'm thinking, well, why would he have him standing up? Because if you stand up, I don't, you, you could be Meryl Streep. If you're supposed to be dead and upright in a glass box, you're going to move. So why not yeah, have right. them laying down? But then I thought, how, wait, okay, that bounces back to how the hell are they standing up? <laughs> and if his whole point is to appreciate their beauty, you only see them from like six inches below the shoulders and up. Right, because otherwise Dude, they, they would fall out. You know we know what he's doing with those dead women down there. And he's got them wearing these robes and we only see them from the shoulders up. Come on. <laughs> Those chicks would be in G-strings and on a slab, I mean, horizontal. But <laughs> we'll save that for the remake. Right. And if that makes me sound too creepy, cut it out. The Jess the just, the just Franco <laughs> version. Yeah. <laughs> Ten years later. Yeah. Um. Well, then we cut back to uh, Catherine arriving at the table. and And then we have the dance scene. Which is the saddest dance scene in cinema history. Again, this is why I miss Matt Wall because if Matt was on the podcast with us right now, he would have names for the people dancing in this scene (laughs) that are related to something funny about the way that they dance. And I can't think of anything good, so I'm not even going to try. But um, this would be, you know, you know, that scene in. I don't know if it was if you if have you ever seen the sweet body of Deborah? There's a uh, no. There's a scene in that movie where um, Baker, what's her first name? Carol. Uh, Carol. There's a scene where Carol Baker's character is dancing at the club, and she has Christmas balls as earrings. <laughs> <laughs> and then there was another one where. They they're at they come to the last destination in the movie and they're playing Twister in the backyard, but there's a record yeah. that goes along with it and they have to follow the record and she's wearing this green jumpsuit. <laughs> yeah, you told me about that. <laughs> and the music that plays, if you listen to that episode, ladies and gentlemen, I forget what number it is, but it's um either a little lensy or a little more lensy. It's one of those two. It's in the mm-hmm. after fifty. Um, that song I play it in the beginning of the podcast because it's so great. But the um the Christmas ball earrings are just such a sight. And and again, that's why I miss Matt because I think this would be the point in the movie where he would have some great commentary on this dance scene. Yeah. Um, the only thing that I took away from the dance scene the first time I watched it is uh the fact that. When they finally get back, well, first of all, they 
they they clear out a whole area so that the two of them can dance. And I guess it's kind of like, you know, don't knock over the old lady who's trying to dance. But then she comes well, back. Well, is it that? Or... <laughs> what? <laughs> The, the fact that they go out there and they dance, okay? Everybody's dancing. They walk out into the middle of all these other people who are dancing. And then the other people turn around and say, oh, shit, grandma's dancing. And they form the semicircle around them where they're like the center of attention now and everybody's yeah, clapping and smiling. It's like an smiling. American Bandstand episode. That would be my worst nightmare. <laughs> if some girl somehow whittles down my will to the point where I will step foot on a dance floor with her if i go out there and against all my better instincts because i you know i dance like i play sports people <laughs> should just park me on the sidelines with the scorecard you know? <laughs> if i started dancing and everybody formed a circle around me and started watching i would just drop dead right there <laughs> but they do that for granny here and she does like the slowest twist yeah. chubby checker ever saw yeah <laughs> She definitely does. And the, the, and the dance lasts like, what, 20 seconds? And then they go back? They go back and sit down, yeah. And, I and she looks so dejected and sad. I was hoping she'd be happy about it. I think she wants to dance more, you know. As well. uh -huh. But she says something, um, and the, <laughs> the first time I watched this movie, I didn't hear the whole dialogue. She says something like, in all my 42 years, I've never felt so alive. <laughs> and I'm looking right. at her going now 42. I know that they I know that they make old people feel even older when they watch these movies because of the way that they you know that they describe the people and in and, and the characters they made them certain ages and they look a lot younger but yeah um, but then the professor turns to Andrea and says well she's she's kind of honest she only took She's fairly honest. She told me she only took off 20. So I mean, I guess that means she's 62 and not 42. So yeah, I didn't I catch that the first time. Um, and I was very insulted because I'm way older than 42. Um, yeah, me too. <laughs> and I don't look like her. She looks like my grandmother. Yeah. Like I think I said before, I hate it when I see old people on TV and they're younger than me. Yeah. <laughs> it, because the first thing I think is, holy shit, I'm older than that person. Because to me, they look so old. Especially if it's a film I saw when I was like 12 or 13. Right. You know, like uh, like if you're 12 and you're watching, uh, I don't know, let's say Family Ties. Right. Those adults, they're the old people. Right. And Michael Keaton, he's he, he would be like your cool slightly older brother right right mm -hmm. and mallory would be your older sister and the other one i forget what her name is maybe she'd be the same age as you yeah 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 but i watch it now and i realize the parents the keaton parents yeah on family ties right are a lot younger than i am now right <laughs> yep it's so weird absolutely anyway no that's true it's still like one of the reasons why when i watch uh, NFL football on TV. I still think that the players are older than I am because when I first started <laughs> watching football, I was a little kid and I looked up to these players as like, these are the old adults, like the strong fo football guys. And yeah. Now, and, and now when I watch it, they still have that like look, 
they still they still convey that same amount of power to me, but I know that they're 30 years younger than I am. So, yeah. So you would look at them and say, that's who I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> and now it's flipped. They're looking at us saying, that's who I don't want to be when I grow up. <laughs> right. <laughs> Nobody told us exactly when that happened. We missed it. Yeah. It happens when, when you're not looking for it to happen, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. And the next thing you know, it already happened and you go, how the hell did that happen? Um, <laughs> and that's, the best you can hope for, if you're lucky, to, to get that old. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, all of a sudden, the lights go down. Yeah. And Catherine starts to freak out a little bit. Um, but we see a couple of guys come in with lit, lit candles. And then on the center of the stage, there is a box. Uh, and it I guess it's supposed to look like a coffin. Um, yeah. But like a coffin that's got a kind of, a, a t you know, one of those coffins that Dracula would be in because the bottom of it is tapered to be narrower than where the shoulders are. That kind of a coffin. But it's big. It's like much taller. At least the on the screen, the way that the figure who comes out of it is surrounded, the shape is a little bit more than just the coffin. But anyway, the the, the front of it opens and out comes an Elvis lookalike with an acoustic guitar. Mm -hmm. And he's the entertainment for the night. And I wrote on the jalloscore.com, it looks like he was getting paid in the number of times he strummed the guitar because he strums it really fast. Um, yeah, he's lip syncing with the song, obviously. Right. But the song is a lot slower. But... He is lip syncing with the vocals of that song that he's playing, but he's guitar syncing to the Ramones or something totally yeah. different because <laughs> exactly. the rhythm doesn't match at all. Yeah, and it, he has so he has more eyeliner on than Robert Smith, yeah. and it was weird because as the camera was getting closer to him, I couldn't tell if his eyes were open or closed, and then he would blink, and I still couldn't tell if his eyes were open or closed. <laughs> Yeah, oh, that's that's where the the DVD copy would help because I think you'd see it a little bit more clearly. Um, oh, okay. But yeah, uh, he's drumming he, or he's strumming very very quickly, and mm -hmm. I guess the question I had for you at this point is, um, is there any significance to the words that are in the song that he's singing, like as it as it as it applies to the story. Cause I don't know what he was singing about. Actually there is. And I did tell myself that I need to listen to it over and over again and translate the lyrics, but I didn't have time to get around to it. Right. But in my general sense of it and what I wrote down in the notes was it's, it is a song about impending doom. Okay. Kind of like, um, I'm sitting here, there's a threat over me, and I'm around all these people, and uh, we're all maledetti, which is damned. <laughs> uh, and the song itself is called The Medium, because I, I looked it up. Right. I was wondering if this guy had a huge career. And it looks like he only had maybe three singles with B-sides that came out. Oh, so this is a legitimate, like, for the time being, musician star, sort of. Yeah. His... Ah, oh, shit. I 
just pulled away from that page. He has a weird name. He has several names. One of his names is, uh, I think, Johnny Venice or something stupid like that. <laughs> uh, well, let me pull back the IMDb. Okay, so there's Shit, now I can't find it. Oh well. Yeah, he was somebody who was trying to get some career going. Okay, I I just his first. Oh, here we go. Okay, his name, his first name is spelled J T I, which I have no idea how to pronounce that. Right. His second name is J A N N E. In Italian, technically J does not exist in the alphabet, but when you do see it, because other countries use it, they refer to it as a long I. So the last name would be pronounced Yane. So maybe it's Yita Yane. Okay. Would be the name. Um, he has a page on Discogs, believe it or not. Uh, and that has this song, which is called The Medium. And the B-side is called Apocalypse. So. Oh, okay. Maybe, I see uh, it. And if you look it up, it's got a picture from the, the movie on it. Right, but if you just do a Google search for J-T-I-J-A-N-N-E and then go to Images, you can see the sheet music and even the 45 covers for at least three, I think, of his albums. Or not albums, but singles. No, four. Yeah, see that's interesting because, you know, I'm I'm quite aware of the fact that Google um gives you results that are related to you more specifically. Cuz mm-hmm. I don't see that. I see <clears throat> a couple of pictures from the movie. I see him with the guitar. I see a couple of what le- what looks like music notation. Mhm. But I don't see any 45s or covers or anything. Okay. It's pretty interesting, though, that it would be different. But Yeah. Well, it looks like he didn't have an entire album. And I think it was he had his own Wikipedia page on Italian Wikipedia, maybe. Because he had several different pseudonyms and i know one of them the last name was venice like tony venice or johnny venice or something goofy right like that anyway well and somebody's selling this uh 45 rpm record uh, on discogs for um 199 euro Wow. It says it was pulled from a jukebox. That's all I can make out because it's written in Italian. But huh. um, quite a collector's piece there, ladies and gentlemen, if you 
yeah. if you value that sort of thing. Uh, anyway, we probably spent too much time on him. Um, he finishes his song. And <clears throat> what's funny to me is, okay, I understand that when they brought in, you know, when they ushered in this act, it was gloomy. They brought in the candles, they turned the lights off and he comes out of a coffin. It's kind of gothic. And like you said, the song is all about, did you say something like despair and we're all living in, you know, this. Well, it's it's like impending doom. Impending doom. There you go. So the, the gist of the song is something very bad is about to happen. And then he's done playing his song and the, and the whole place just roars with applause like this happy energy. <laughs> right. Um, oh, one important clue in this section of the film. While he's playing, we see the killer in his diving suit coming out and going down the steps into the water. Yes. You can hear that music faintly in the background. Oh, okay. So that tells us that this killer is somewhere close to the hotel. Yeah. So that's a... That's pretty cool. And plus, I mean, if we want to believe the the assumed amount of time that has passed between the various cuts in this little section, we can also say... um, that for sure Andrea and the professor are not the scuba diver. Right. Um, so, cause they, I think they started to paint the professor in a suspicious kind of light a little earlier in the film. But now if you're paying attention, he's there at the table. So if you've made the connection between the music playing in the background, as the scuba diver goes down the hole, um, you can also assume that it's not the people at the table that are the scuba divers. So I guess that's that. Um, but after that scene ends, uh, we see um, the next murder sequence, which is a short one. It's the woman who was asked to get a cup of coffee while she stared to see if the man who asked for coffee was circumcised. <laughs> And <laughs> she's now kind of walking along through the uh, outdoor areas of the town. And we know that mm-hmm. uh, our fearless scuba diver is out for blood. And, you know, as soon as she, as soon as she kind of comes around the corner, he's right there to grab her. And, um, they both jump. And this in. is after she hears him stomping around the bushes with his flippers on. Right. The flippers again. <sighs> right. But, okay, they fall back into the canal together, and she leaves something behind. I think it's... She drops something. What is it? Is it a purse? I think it's her purse. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. It gets found later by the police, I think, but... Mm-hmm. This so this fourth kill was very quick. Um, was it the fourth or the third? I can't remember. On screen, it, I have it marked as the third. Third on, on screen. screen. Yeah. So uh, we go back to the club and um, let's see. Are they dancing? And then 
-hmm. Someone comes in to tell Andrea about something. Now, does Andrea leave because there's been a report of a missing girl? Is that what it was? I assume so. Because how would they know that pretty quick? Yeah. Yeah. Well, oh, I know how because they explain it in a second. When he goes out and meets the marshal, the marshal says there was an insomniac that heard a cry and then a splash. Oh, okay. So there's a ear witness to the yoink splash, and they found her purse and a piece of her scarf. And oh, apparently Venice is a much smaller town than I thought because anybody can find anybody within five minutes. So. Well, what's the thing that he points at, at the stairs? Those are the flipper prints. Oh. steps. I never noticed that. Right? I just It just looked to me like a rock. No, it's just one set of flipper prints. <laughs> and when, when they're showing it to it, uh, Andrea says, I was right. There is a monster. And it's a monster duck. <laughs> It's the creature from the Black Lagoon. But, okay, I'm so glad you pointed that out. Because even with the higher resolution version, I never made out that those were prints. Because the 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 marshal, all he says is, and there's this. And he points to the steps. And I look at the steps yeah. and I'm like, what is it? I don't see anything. I'm looking in the water. I'm looking at the steps. Um, okay, but now I see the flipper prints. <laughs> it makes it makes more sense now because I had no idea what yeah. that was. All right, um, mm-hmm. let's see here. And then the camera pans over from the marshal and Andrea, and you see the water, and you see the damn flashlight in the water. And I don't know. Maybe that's one of the police divers looking for whatever. Yes, I think that is because. But- don't they okay. don't they pull somebody out that, that dressed exactly like the killer at one point? And for a second you're like, oh, they caught him, but no, it's just them looking for the body. But I think that was when Grace fell yeah. in. Yeah. That's I hope that was a cop with the flashlight. Because I the first time I saw this, I was like, holy the guy's right there. But no. Okay, never mind. I'm talking myself out of it. Um um, I'm I'm watching that scene right now. Oh yeah, okay. That you know that may have also been a reflection. I mean, it, they they pan the camera to the left. You see the light. I don't know. Oh right, right. Well, it could be a light from above. Like just it was you know they they pan to the left just to move the scene to the next scene. But <clears throat> anyway, uh, too many details we, that no one cares about. Um. We're back in the crypt, and the most recent uh, acquisition is on the slab. And now we're going to see um, some details about what he's up to, although we can't really figure it out anyway. He pours one glass bottle of liquid into another. Um, he pours, he, he puts a mixture together into a taller tube. He brings that tube over to um, this really tall cylinder on the wall. And uh, <clears throat> excuse me, he then um, proceeds to fill a syringe with some sort of liquid. He injects 
the body and says something about his secret potion and how mm -hmm. she's going to be eternally preserved. And then he hooks up this tube to her and, you know, again, uh, hence the reason why the film is called the embalmer, um, because that's t technically what he's trying to do here. Um, and he has a special potion, a special concoction, which, you know, may contribute to how they're able to stand up straight inside the, inside the box, but we don't know for sure. Okay. Um, we leave to the next scene and uh, Andrea walks over the bridge and runs into the two town drunks who says they saw something in the water. Um, the next scene we see Nikki and Professor Schwartz. He's working on a map. Um, and then we see three different shots of the shoes. And at first I thought they were his shoes, but then you see that the shoes are actually outside the door of uh, apartment, f uh, what is it, 40, 48 maybe? Yeah. Yeah. And then so walks away. So he's in there listening to a tape recording of his own notes. Right. Exactly. And plus, conveniently enough, he has a habit of talking to himself. Yes, very convenient. Well, so yeah. somebody is standing at the door eavesdropping on him and his tape recorder. And right when he says uh, that he thinks he should check out the hotel cellar, we see the the eavesdropper's feet outside the door scurry off. Right. So someone will be following the professor very soon, uh, but not before mm -hmm. we see Grace. And Grace has uh, come, yes. come home uh, from a long day of tourism in Venice, and she's so tired, and she wants to go grab a bath. <laughs> um, and right in front of the desk clerk, she says, oh, I'm going to go take a long, hot bath. <laughs> <laughs> and Perv Dude is like, doink, okay, uh I gotta go. I'll be back in a minute. They're both perv dudes. She just likes one of them. That's the that's the thing. Yeah. <laughs> but one of them set her up with a two way mirror, and the other one is setting her up with a, an actual phone call and possible real physical contact. Right. Exactly. Well, there's a. There, I guess there's a little bit of a psycho thing going on here, where, you know, it's a hotel. Um. There's a woman yeah. you're seeing through the hole, but it's a lot more sleazy and gratuitous here instead of yeah. it being, you know, in Psycho, it's very like, um, it feels dirty because it's like uh, very secretive. But with this one, it's right. like the guy standing in front of the mirror making that face like. <laughs> I was hoping that the tall guy would be watching her from behind the mirror and would see his coworker come in the door and actually <laughs> get more than a view. Maybe that's what happens. So to speak. They just, you know, well, actually it, it ah, doesn't. Because maybe that's their whole. Maybe, yeah. That's their, that's their thing. They actually are a couple, the two bellhops, but one of them really no. only just likes to watch. So 
Let's see, I think you're just jaded from watching a lot of porn. <laughs> Absolutely, I am. Uh, so uh, Grace goes into the bathroom to take her bath, and we now see the professor. He's down uh, exploring the cellar area. And one thing that I wanted to point out is um, he walks over to one of the walls, and I guess there's like, concrete that's chipping off one of the layers of the walls and he's using some sort of tool to chip at chip away at it and it reminded me of Argento's Deep Red because in that movie the Mark Daly character goes out and he's chipping away at the plaster on a wall to reveal a painting that um, leads you to um, the conclusion of who the killer is in that movie and uh, in this one, it wasn't obvious to me that he was scraping away to reveal something on the wall or if he was just scraping away because he knew that there was a passage that he could get to or there was some way of breaking through. Yeah, I think what he's done is he's chipped away the plaster, which looks like it's gotten kind of soggy and soft yeah. over time. And... From where I have it paused, you see like a very nice edge along the wall. So either he's discovered a different type of wall, or it could look like he's found a part of an arched doorway. Yes. Maybe. Okay. Yeah, it does. So it does the point is, he's discovered there's something behind the wall. Yeah, it looks And we heard him earlier saying he's looking for a submerged monastery. Right. So. so. Or maybe at this point he hasn't said that yet. Well, no, he had to have said it by now because he doesn't say too much more. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah. Well, towards the end of his little um, archaeology experiment, um, the, we see someone approach and uh, we hear the words... Um, Find it, Professor? But we don't actually hear the word Professor completely. It gets cut off. And he turns around and gives you this kind of shocked, surprised look. And then we cut away. Mm -hmm. um, and we cut back to Grace, who is now just wearing a towel. And the phone rings. And it is the other porter that's downstairs who she actually likes and struck up a conversation with. And he says, well, the boss is out. Now, we know who the boss is. Um, we don't know that he's the killer yet, but we know who the boss is. The boss is out, and um, I have something to give you, right? They arranged mm -hmm. to meet. Um, <clears throat> so, okay, after that scene, uh, we're back into another area that looks like the cellar, and the coffin that will be used for the show gets moved out um, by a bunch of, um, you know, waiters or what have you. Um, I mm -hmm. think they say something about how it's heavier than usual. Um, and I don't know, like, I just kind of assumed that for this stage show, behind the, the wall where the coffin was, there was a door that you could walk into it. But it looks like <laughs> our guitar, <laughs> our guitar playing person, Actually, has to get in the coffin 
to be brought out. But then how much, yeah. how long ago, isn't that weird? How long ago did he place himself in there that he's just waiting for these four guys to carry him out there? Right. And did he drill some holes in it so he could breathe right. in case they forget <laughs> or cancel his set? Like, this is what they do every night, right? They come and they grab the coffin and they bring it out. But do they bring it out with him in it? And wouldn't you check to see if he was in it first? It's all, it's heavy. He must have been, I, he must be taking a nap or something. Now see, the two, both times I watched this, well, no, the second time more, I assumed that they would go down there and get the empty coffin and bring it upstairs somewhere, and then the dude would step inside it. So my question oh, was, why does it take four guys to carry an empty coffin up the steps? But then the one guy says, oh, it feels a little heavier than normal. Well, if you have a 200-pound guy in there, it's going to be heavier, but... It would be 200 pounds heavier than it's supposed to be. Yeah. And you would think more than one person would notice that. So was he saying it feels heavier because normally there's a 180-pound <laughs> guitar player in there, but now there's a 200-pound professor? That's my question, yes. that That is a good okay. question. Is it because it weighs a little less, but it's still heavy? Or is it because it weighs because a lot it less because it's supposed to be empty? A lot more. Um but, Either way. But the next question is, if they set the coffin up on the stage and then walked away <laughs> and he wasn't supposed to be in there, why didn't they, like, in other words, if the normal routine is they set up the empty coffin and then they call him and they put him in, they didn't do that. They just set the coffin right. up. And <laughs> the show starts and instead of uh, the Elvis guy jumping out, it's the professor and he's got a a knife stabbed right into his gut and uh, the, yep. the place goes crazy and he falls face forward and somehow lands on his back, which is also really funny. Uh, yeah. But they had to have him land on his back so that you could go over and see, you know, you could examine him and see who he was. Yeah. We have to see his face a couple more seconds before we get it. Exactly. But again, I, I just assumed that either there was a hole in the wall or like you said, they put the guy in the coffin before the show started. But anyway. But they don't bother to check on him as they're carrying him up the steps and putting the coffin in place. <laughs> There's not like knock twice if you need a pee break or something. <laughs> <laughs> right. You got it. Maybe they just keep that guy in that coffin. That's why he's so moody and depressed. <laughs> he needs time to but put then his they find out later on. that he was sick and he was out for a few days right i guess that message didn't make it back to the hotel well because because in the next scene the commissioner thinks that since the guy that's normally in there isn't there he must be the murderer <laughs> it must, yeah. it's gotta be the commissioner him is the, the genius what, what makes you think that commissioner i don't know it's you know the easiest <laughs> answer i could come up with i mean obviously He's not that here. guy. It looks like be him. Yeah. He's wearing more eyeliner than Robert Smith. Of course, he's a killer. <laughs> <laughs> so Andrea decides um, <clears throat> that he's going to go down and investigate a little bit, and he goes down into the cellar. Does he ask anything about the cellar to give him the idea that he should go down there, or he's you just go there on a hunch? I forget. Like, does he ask somebody that works uh... at the hotel, like? Yeah, he went to the guy at the desk, which was not one of our... Oh, and the funny part is, 
Wait. Okay. So you're talking about when he goes into the, uh, oh, into the professor's he goes into hotel. The professor's room. hotel. Okay, that's where he gets the, the clues right. to go and check. Yeah, it's all it's all very, very well calculated to these like, these what ifs and these these, uh, you know, unfinished uh, conclusions. But well, he turns on the tape recorder and you hear the professor on the recording say. Uh, I think I found it. It has to be within the area of, and then he cuts it off right then. And I guarantee you, if he had played that tape for like five more seconds, he would have said, it's in the area of the of this hotel. Right. But he turns it off like right before. But somehow he still knows to look for the seller. So he goes and asks, oh, no, no. He goes to the cellar because he was asking where they kept the coffin. Right. He says, where do you keep the coffin? In the storage cellar? Because I guess somehow he knows there's a storage cellar. And without missing a beat, he just helps himself to walk into the hotel's storage cellar. Right. Okay, so that's what it was. Because I know he asked somebody about where do you keep the coffin or something like that. So he goes into yeah. the cellar, he's, he's looking around, and he finds the pipe, the pipe that belongs to the professor, and right next to the pipe is uh, a little pool of blood, and then he brings his uh, his light up to investigate the spot in the wall where the professor was kind of um, chipping away at, and like you're right, there's like a recessed mm-hmm. area right there, so it looks like something's going on. Um, yeah. And he walks a little bit further, and um, then he turns off his his uh his lighter and leaves and then we transition to uh, a couple of a couple more filler scenes of the printing press the hallway people walking down the hallway being busy people lining up the newspapers and then another people walking down the hallway after the outside shot <laughs> of the guy delivering the newspaper we get one more people walking down the hallway and i actually went and checked to make sure it wasn't the exact same thing looped twice um and it's not no. But uh, I thought maybe they did that. Um, I like how they had to pad the padding so it didn't break during shipping. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, padding the padding. Um, So Andrea is back at his desk. But um, the next scene he's sitting next to... Uh, Maureen again. Mm-hmm. And I think we have another one of these situations where. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. So back a scene. This is when uh, Andrea finds out what happened to the singer and that he's been in the hospital and that he has an alibi. So the next scene, he's sitting next to Maureen and they're talking about Catherine. And then all of a sudden we see the footsteps walking again. And this time. The uh, junk inspector is uh, Grace, who, yep. you know, it, it, it's a really cool device that they use. They do not want to show you anything above the kneecap of the killer. Right. But how are we supposed to see the next victim's face? So they have all of these little tricks, like the one woman is standing up on a stepladder and she's putting uh, she's putting towels away. And the next woman. Right. Um, and she's looking down at the killer and smiling. Yeah. And <laughs> the next one is showing us her boobs while she's checking out his pocket contents. Yep. 
looking up and smiling. And Grace does the same thing, basically. And Grace, yeah, she looks really happy to see this uh, dark pair of pants walk past her. <laughs> so, and of course, we get the freeze frame. Yes, yeah, so we get the freeze frame on Grace. So, so it's it's uh oh yeah, there it's pretty. She, it, she, her doom has been sealed by the freeze frame. Ah, uh, sating. So. so it's gondola at nighttime riding, and um, we see a little shadow of our uh, killer putting on his scuba gear again, and all the girls get into one of the boats. And okay, and but Andre- along the way, yeah. Along the way out of the hotel, uh, Grace is walking with Andrea and Maureen, and Maureen notices what a pretty belt. Oh yes, that's right. Grace is wearing, and she says, "Oh, thank you. It was a gift." And I think that was when the the desk clerk guy said, "I have something for you." Uh, right. I think that was she got he it from the desk the belt. clerk. Yes. Yeah. Yep. And they only mention that because obviously it's going to come up later right and if you still don't know who it is um it could be the desk clerk and that's that's the connection um so they get in the gondolas and maureen and andrea go off on their own because they're gonna make out and yeah they're the (laughs) grown-ups the rest of the girls they're the escorts they get their own boat (laughs) exactly So this time, the, not escorts. They're the chaperones. The chaperones. Sorry. Right. No, no, you're right. Yeah. I, I, that's what I thought you were yeah. referring to. Um, so the yeah. next thing that happens is our killer. He decides that he's going to be real brazen this time and just attack the whole boat. <laughs> and uh, he goes up to the boat. He shakes it. He knocks all the girls into the water. They get fished out. But lo and behold. After they fish everybody out and make it back to the hotel, they realize that Grace is missing. Yeah. Um, which is a bad sign because, and we know she, we knew Grace wouldn't come back because she got freeze framed. So um, there is this scene right after this hotel scene where they uh, show somebody in the water with the flashlight and then he gets pulled into the, boat and for a split second you're like oh they caught him you know because it looks just like him but instead it's just one of the police people that's diving for clues or to find grace so in the next scene andrea i think it's morning now right i mean it looks like daylight again it looks like daylight yeah so he runs into the the two drunks and they say yeah um now we really know what we saw this time it's a fish with a light on its head and, um, wait, I, wait, I have something written in my notes here. Wait a second. Oh, <laughs> why? If, if they've got four missing girls, why are they still there? They're tourists, right? So four <laughs> girls go missing and they all decide to hang out in Venice while there's a killer on the loose or a, at least somebody abducting women and go out for a, a boat ride at night. Like, why didn't they just say, it's time to go back to wherever we came from? But anyway. Um, it's kind of like in Eyeball, where people yeah. in the tour group keep getting murdered, but the tour <laughs> continues. Keep the tour going on. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's a great one. Yeah. 
So a fish with a lamp on its head, and then they see something floating in the water, and it turns out to be Grace's belt. Um, now, this is the scene I was talking about. The scene in the editor's office. Right after Andrea gets off the phone in his, in his office, he goes to talk to his editor. And if you watch this scene, it starts around... Um, 5741 on the YouTube version. Okay. The first person we see is the marshal who isn't saying right. anything. Then we see the editor who isn't saying anything. Then right. we see Andrea's face for a second. And then we pan to the right to show <laughs> the marshal who isn't saying anything, who looks to the editor who isn't saying anything. <laughs> And the whole, and, and then we're back to the marshal who looks at Andrea, who isn't saying anything, and Andrea is anything. not saying anything, and now the editor's not saying anything, and Andrea again, and the editor again, and then uh, Andrea, no, and then uh, I'm sorry, the marshal, and then Andrea throws uh, something in the garbage, and signs his letter of resignation, and that's the end of the scene, and it's like. I watched it. A well, there is a, a bit of a conversation in there, right? Yeah. Well, they're all talking, but every time the person who's talking is in the ears or the speakers, they don't show whoever's talking. So, oh, right. Yeah. You never see the lips moving. So watching it silently, like I'm doing right now, because I have it muted right. to, to hear you. It's, it strikes me as hilarious. Especially but if watching it and hearing the audio, I didn't think there was anything funny about it. I was just like, I if you watch it at twice the speed, it's even funnier. But that's beside the point. Dude, that should be a gif. <laughs> just like an endless loop of these guys looking at each other. Then but this is this is what struck me as odd. Is I'm watching this and I'm watching who they have on the frame and who they're framing and who they're moving the camera to, and nobody who's actually responsible for the dialogue is on screen. And I'm like, my guess is that. Um, they probably ran out of something or did this scene at the end. And maybe they, you know, like what I wrote here is maybe they constructed this scene as an afterthought and they didn't have any actual film of them doing the dialogue. So they just right. created a scene based on other things that they had filmed and edited it together with people making eyes at each yeah, other. So maybe they just use end clips of previous scenes right. where people, the actors weren't even acting. They were just sitting around bored waiting for their time, right. <laughs> waiting for somebody to say uh, rolling or something. Yeah, that's what I thought. That was pretty wild. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. So basically um, the point of this scene is that Andrea says, um, I know what's going on. And I guess he says uh, that he's not going to publish this. Or um, is he saying he'll publish it, but if it turns out to be untrue, then he'll be fired or something like that. And he says that. Yeah. Fine. And then he says, uh, you can't fire me. Here's my letter of resignation. So. Right. I think they're both saying the same thing, basically. Now, if this doesn't pan out, I'm not going to work here one way or the other. But So from this moment on, I think the movie really starts to ramp up and become exciting. We have Maureen in her room, and I guess she's able to see as she turns the light off that her mirror is also a two-way mirror. And 
No, this is Maureen in Grace's room. Oh, she's in Grace's room. Oh, okay. Right. Because she's looking for clues what happened to Grace. Okay. So she sh- she shuts the light off and she sees somebody on the other side who's wiping the mirror. And she gives she has like a look on her face of, of, of uh, surprise. So she walks out and she looks into a room and she sees... Um, the one of the one of the porters, and she gets upset and she says, "I want to see Mister Tory, who's the manager." <clears throat> mm-hmm. So she goes up the steps, and I guess she is in Mister Tory's office at this point. Um, and she stays there for a minute. Um, she's waiting for him to come back, and then she notices, I think, um, after sitting there for a minute or two, she starts walking around the office and she's looking at the statues and she's looking at the decorations and, and there's more curtains against the wall. Oh yeah. With the, with the, yeah. With the painting hanging on it. Yep. (laughs) But this is a much bigger room than the editor's office. Yeah. And fancier. Yeah. Yeah. Here we actually do see some kind of wall there's no evidence of in the editor's office. And there's like a fireplace, which we see again. But before that, we cut back to Andrea, who decided that he's going to do an experiment um, by diving in the water with a flashlight. Um, And see, I'm also just about as dumb as the two guys that sit outside and drink wine. But there were two things happening here. The one was that he was going to recreate what they saw so that they could say, yeah, that's what we saw. But at the same time, he's diving down to find the door. And yeah. at first I didn't realize that he was diving down to find the door. At first I thought that he was just trying to go into the canal with the flashlight to recreate the thing for them to say, yeah, that's what we saw. But that wouldn't really prove much because they're, they're drunk. So it doesn't really matter what they saw. Well, what I don't understand about this is he hands the big guy, the rope, and I guess he's holding on to the other end of it or has it tied around his waist or something. And he says, I'm going to get in the water with the light. When you see me get to where you saw the light disappear, pull on the rope. Oh, okay. okay. Right. Why the fuck would you just do that? Why don't you just swim along the surface until you get and they, they can just say, hey, right there. Stop right there. Swim straight down. That's where we saw the light disappear. Why has he got to be submerged and have this rope and they're looking at the light and sit? Well, isn't it because they can't agree on where they thought they saw the light? Because they were. Yeah, but now he's underwater. He can't hear them arguing. And (laughs) that's the other thing. They can't agree on where it was. (laughs) It's like they made it a lot more difficult than it needed to be. Yeah. Just you go stand right over the area where you saw him disappear. And I will just either jump in right there or swim to there. <laughs> but I mean, I can see the benefit of having a rope tied around your waist. But. It's very true. <laughs> they wanted to make it more complicated than it needed to be. I don't know why. Maybe just to make it for make it interesting. So then we cut back to uh, Maureen in the manager's office, and she notices a little bit of a draft that um, makes the the tassels of the uh, carpet kind of 
blow in the breeze. She gets out a couple of matches to confirm that there's some sort of draft coming from the fireplace. So, you know, and this is like Scooby-Doo time, right? Like, <laughs> this is where the film really gets interesting. She starts pushing on all these different places on the wall. And then all of a sudden, she pushes on this one uh, part of the, of the whatever you call the that. Mantle. The mantle. And um, yeah. the, 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 the fireplace door kind of brick wall, like false brick wall opens. And so she gets a, a little mm-hmm. candelabra and lights it up. And she's going to go explore. Now, meanwhile, we cut back to Andrea. Um, and basically, they see the light and they're <laughs> arguing about where they thought they saw the light. Is it there? Was it there? We're back to Maureen again. And this is a really I really like this, the spookiness of the scene and the way that they filmed it. You know, she's coming down the spiral steps really slow. The camera's up close. It's underneath uh, shooting her from her feet up. It's shooting her from her top down and then we cut to you know our our pal uh in his laboratory doing his thing with grace and i thought Mm -hmm. grace made a very uh convincing corpse she didn't move at all yeah um yeah you don't see any blinking or anything you know so they did a good job with her. Yeah, she should get the uh the best supporting cadaver (laughs) nomination at the oscars (laughs) Her chest didn't heave. And when she was propped up in the box, she didn't teeter back and forth. <laughs> she didn't fog up the glass in front of her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's always a dead giveaway. Or what if they cheated and just put a still shot in there? Yeah. Instead of her. No. Oh. That happens sometimes. I prefer to believe that she's that great of an actress that, uh. She went on to play corpses in the private sector. (laughs) You never heard from her again. (laughs) (laughs) So Maureen keeps coming down the steps and it's real spooky and very cool and gothic and hammer horror esque, very creamy, definitely Mm -hmm. 60s kind of deal. She gets locked in. One of the doors closes. We cut back up to... um, the the, the 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 three stooges up 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 top here trying to figure <laughs> out where the light goes um and again you know you, you have to remember that this clocks in at 117 they probably only had you know 54 minutes worth of actual material and had to fill the rest so um yeah so Ma- and we're back down to the tombs again and Maureen comes around with her candelabra and uh, is this the scene where she finally, yeah. So she, she, she finally makes her way to the area where the killer is and the big reveal uh, comes. Uh, it's the Grim Reaper. Yeah. He turns his head around and it's the Grim Reaper. And you're like, yep. that was kind of freaking scary. Like, you know, um, as it was supposed to be. So she screams, the camera um, and the candles flash up to reveal all the people uh, in the cat, you know, in, in the containers. And then she tries to run away and the Grim Reaper comes to get her. And uh, I think she fights him off. 
And the best part about and he's the, going very slow yeah, too. And the best he has a Michael Myers kind of vibe about it, right? And we know who he is now. Um, and he didn't really, you know, when he's out with the pigeons, he's not walking like that. We well, don't really see him walking. But anyway, um, yeah. I think it was kind of cool that he decided, you know what? I'm not going to chase after her like, you know, like a chase. I'm just going to methodically, uh, you know, walk like a zombie after her. Because I guess maybe they wanted to just continue to reinforce this idea that it, it's a monster, you know, Um Okay, but for the character in the story, okay, you're the psycho killer embalmer dude down there in your lair. You're wearing your little party robe. Why would you have the mask on? Uh, to, I don't know, um, for your own validation as a psychopath, like you... you. So do you think just part of putting... A, on the robe, part of his psychosis is wearing the skull mask too. Yeah, I mean, and the, the fact robe. that he walks around like with claws and the shadows, and right, like with his crazy hands. Yeah, he, he's into it. Like it's a, okay. it's an alter ego when he when he switches out of Mister Tory uh, to you know the 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 monster of Venice. Like it's right, it's almost as right. if he doesn't even know it. It you know it's going on. Maybe you know he's, but who knows? Okay. That's cool. But the first time I saw this, okay, he's wearing the robe. He has the hood on. We only see him from behind. Obviously, they don't want us to know who it is because there's going to be a big Jolly reveal at the end. When he turned around and he had the mask on, I was like, what the fuck? Why wouldn't he just wear the mask the whole time? What? But then something happens real soon here that, for me, was the coolest part of the film. And it involves the mask. Yeah. So Well, um... I think that if you look at that scene when Maureen comes in and the killer turns his head around, it's very psycho mother final scene, yeah, right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. I think that that sort of scene was just built into the film for entertainment value. Um, if it was, if the person turned around and it was just their normal face, um, first of all, you might have the reaction that you have at the end of the movie where you say, who the fuck is that? But because um, that's the reaction I had, at least the first time I watched it. Um, but, yeah, there's just this kind of scare thing. I mean, you know, it's a person because, you know, that they're connecting the footsteps and, um, you know, the, the freeze frame shots when the person's like a norm in normal society. And you also know that the right. guy doesn't always wear this this robe with the hood on it. He also wears scuba gear when he goes out to murder. So he's not actually a creature, but I guess they want to just continue to push that idea. Like maybe it is some sort of, um, you know, some sort of phantasmagorical kind of thing. Um, Mm -hmm. But just like in Scooby-Doo, that's what they would do down to the last minute where, you know, they were going after this skeleton looking guy who would come out and green light would come out of his, his eyes and, he would float around and then at the end of the cartoon, they had explained how he did all those special effects and they pull his mask off and it's, you know, it's the it's the town commissioner or whoever it is. And right. it's the same thing here. Like they have they have both of those things going on. Plus they, you know, they, they wanted to give you that little shock of seeing that skeleton, you know. So yeah. uh, plus it was on the poster, so they had to show it. Yeah, true. I and yeah. 
It was definitely it was definitely but a coaster. it pays off, I think, in a big way. Yeah, it does for me too. So so we go back up to the surface, and I think Andre at this point says he found um, the opening, called the police, right? And mm-hmm. then we go back, and there's a, another chase scene with uh, Maureen. with Maureen and the killer, and um, yeah. he follows her. Into this room. This must be the thing we were both talking about. Uh, we oh we we cut back to Andrea again. She's walking again. Andrea makes his way into the catacombs because he's been through the hole. Um, right. and he's looking around. So we got the killer walking. We've got Andrea walking, and we got Maureen walking, and they and they haven't run into each other yet. But now Andrea finds Grace. And. Uh, Maureen walks into this room and I'll freeze it here because <laughs> I think we are talking about the same thing. Um, Maureen walks into this room. She turns the light on. It's at one hour and one hour and 10 minutes and 40 seconds. She turns the light on and we have uh, a skeleton um, who pops out of the, out of the darkness with a robe on sitting down. And then if you look closely, the next thing that happens is the killer comes in and really quickly sits down and goes completely still. And Right. So they're in the ossuary <laughs> right. of the monastery, which is where they keep the, the bones of the old priests and monks. Yes. And they're all and sitting And those up. places actually exist. Uh, I've never seen one where they have entire skeletons in rotting robes sitting up. Well, that was my question. But, like, would they really be in those prone positions with their robes still on, if they were, if they, if this was a a, a mausoleum or a a cath- an ossuary, an, os- an ossuary, yeah. Um, I've only been to a couple of them, and they were both way down south. So up here, I mean, the area I live in now is a lot closer to Venice, and this type, maybe if this is typical of the region type of ossuary than I'm used to. In the South, when I went to one, it was basically the walls were just lined with piles of skulls. And there were candelabras hanging from the ceiling that were made of like femurs and arm bones wow. and stuff. Uh it's pretty creepy, but yeah. uh it is creepy. The effect wears off like five minutes after you walk in. You know? Yeah. By the time you're done with the tour, you know, skulls don't mean shit to you because you've just been overloaded with them. Right. But this is a part where I sat up and gasped (laughs) and and I was not expecting it because, you know, I'm wondering through the whole movie, why is this asshole wearing the stupid rope? And then who is he anyway? Why can't we see who it is? And then he turns around and he's wearing the stupid fucking skull mask. What the fuck? This is stupid. <laughs> and then he runs. He chases her into the ossuary. Where there's like a million. Well, not a million. <laughs> but there's like a dozen robe <laughs> skeletons sitting just staring into space. He chases her in there. And is it before or after uh, Andrea gets in there? They, they edited this, this so well because it's hard to remember the exact um, sequence of right. events. But 
Andrea finds Grace and then he hears somebody scream and he yells out for Maureen. And right. Um, so Maureen runs in there. She finally, there's a flash of light and she sees like the, the head skeleton right. in the, the fancy prominent chair. Yep. Screams her head off. Dude just sits down they, and blends in with all the other robe skeletons. They just and, they cut to that, and it's almost like he had planned this all along. But it had it's like <laughs> oh god, it's so perfect. And then holy shit, she doesn't know he's she there, and he, she's going to walk right past him. <laughs> and sure as shit, it's great. Now she and Andrea are screaming at each other through the echoplex that is the. The catacombs. Oh, God, it's great. She runs right to this guy, and he just stands up and grabs her like, yoink. And... All right, so then he's uh, struggle, struggle. Andrea's running. He hears her. He's trying to save his uh, love, I guess. Yeah. That he met, what, three days ago? <laughs> yep. The struggle, and he just the struggle ensues. Yeah, but by the time Andrea, he strangles her, she drops on the floor. He gets up and he runs and sits back down in the chair. He does that same trick again to Andrea, and I was cheering. This movie oh, yeah, out of like nowhere on the final lap won me over. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but then it loses it again because, well. I mean, I'll let you take over this scene. scene oh no, that's okay. Just, that that was that whole section was just so cool. Yeah, it was. It was. It's it's worth the price of admission. <laughs> yeah, because it's not that long of a movie anyway. Um, right. Yeah. So yes, so he pops up again, and uh, another chase ensues, and um, they start fighting, and then uh, they're fighting over by the power grid thing. That you mentioned before, yeah. and it's important that we mm-hmm. recall the pin that we put in that little scene where we saw water leaking through the uh, through through the brick face, right. because our yeah. our killer is going to throw a wrench. And <laughs> what exa- I don't exactly know what happened. At first, I thought he hit the power grid with the wrench. Um. And it's spark. Yeah, it, it did kind of look like it hit that switch thing, and it didn't and it? it sparks up, and the lights go off. But then, I guess that was just enough force for the bricks to give way where the leak is, and all of a sudden, the gushing water comes in. And this must have been. I mean, I don't know how they. I don't know how they put this part together because it doesn't look like you could fabricate a whole dungeon like this for the budget that they had. So they must have been. I don't know. They must have been doing it for real. So uh, the water comes streaming in, and that's really of of no consequence because no one drowns. Um, no one, you know, n- nothing. You know, if you remember, what the hell was it? One of those Red Queen movies. At the end, there's a big flood, and right. the killer is yeah. there, and the last victim is there, and it's important that they save her or something. But in this, it doesn't mm-hmm. really matter. I think it was just done for effect. So. And somehow, bam, 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 they're up on the surface, running through the square. And before they run through the square, they actually run through the lobby, I think. Oh, right. Because the water... Okay, so they must have come up through the fireplace. 
passage. Either that or however you however you can normally connect. I don't know if there was any other way to get in there. There was, there was the door in the canal and then there was the door in the fireplace. But um, yeah, yeah I guess that's it. Yeah. Yeah. So they come through. <laughs> he still has the mask. On. He's still running with the mask on, but eventually it starts to um, give way as they're chasing each other through the square. And it's not really a good chase. They both look like they're tired of running. And <laughs> they both look like they're exhausted. Yeah. He, oh, that's what he is. He grabs them and he gets away, but his hood comes down. And so you can see his hair sticking out of the back of the mask. Pulls him again, uh-huh. and in my notes, it says, Andrea catches the killer, and it's not the Grim Reaper. It's, wait, who the fuck is that? Who is that? Oh, yeah. It's Mr. It's Mr. Torrey. Torrey. The hotel manager. Yeah. Um, If you were paying attention, you would recognize that, but I don't know how many people did. And uh, uh, before this came out in, in home media, obviously, only people only watched this probably once. So yeah. I don't know if they went back and said, oh, yeah, now I recognize him. So um, they fight um, for a while. He doesn't say anything. Um, but then eventually shots ring out and uh, the cops save the day. And the marshal is there. And the ending is really bad. Um, <laughs> Andrea, Andrea said he'll never forget what happened. Um, even though... The marshal says, you've got to forget. And uh, then the marshal says, I believe, I, I finally believe that it happened here. Now that I've seen this, if it, was, oh, if it wasn't for that, I would never believe that this had happened if it wasn't for that. And he points to the body. And yeah. I don't think there's anything more to it than that. He just, he was the guy who said, I will believe anything, but I won't, you know, I, I'll entertain any idea, but I won't believe it until I see it. And so that's like the the finishing touch on the end of the movie. Um, and then we see the bells ring that they showed in the very beginning. And uh, it looks like there might have been even pigeons coming down. Let me check my, because the YouTube version, it ends with like a very last shot of pigeons flying down and then huh. it just goes blank. Mine blacks out after the bell ringer thing. I didn't see any pigeons. It's on there for like half a second. I noticed when they were showing the bell ringing statue thing, it was totally out of sync with the sound of the bell ringing. Yeah, the bells ring. It says the end. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it doesn't. The one on YouTube shows a split second of pigeons flying. And I wonder if that was because they grabbed it from a different source and it was off the TV. But here's the thing. And we're at the end and it seems very um, anticlimactic because we want a little bit more payoff, right? Um, Yeah. We want to hear something from the killer other than at the end. Because that's all he did. He just said, he just said, yeah. And why did in getting shot by a cop on the square in broad daylight? Yeah, that's why did he do it? Not super thrilling. I want to hear something about what prompted this man to do this. Because I mean, it's clear. Well, and and that's because again, if we're critiquing this film as a giallo, 
Um, mm -hmm. I think that that's what we wait for or what we look for in, in the ending of a film to see if that, you know, we can fill in the blanks for why, what motivated the killer to do this. But maybe the answer is that he's just crazy and right. that's it. Well, like at the end of Psycho, we're waiting for the psychiatrist to explain everything in the last five minutes. Right. But one thing I was kind of hoping for, and I kind of hate to say this because usually I hate saccharine shit like this, but I was hoping that Maureen would have survived. Right. Because he didn't stab her. He didn't twist her neck or anything. He kind of just did the choke hands on her neck for a couple of seconds. And, yep. Uh, I was hoping that she would have uh, walked up there with the cop, you know, smacking him awake. Andrea, after the struggle with the killer. Yeah. Yeah. That would have been, but, that would have been more apropos, I think, to a, a giallo five years later. Um, because usually the giallo film ends with the killer being captured or killed in some way. Mm -hmm. And our amateur detective makes it out with his life. And usually the love interest that he was pursuing also is there. <clears throat> And in this case, yeah. it, it didn't happen. It just ended on a down sour note of, uh, you know, what's happening to our city. You know, we've got the Grim Reaper running around and we never would have believed it. So. Yeah. So in this movie, the last girl turned out to be the professor's aunt. You know, at the young age of 42. Wink, wink. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, for the Jalo score, just to get us there. I thought this would score higher, but it really didn't. Um, I gave it points for black gloves and I'm not sure why I did. I mean, you don't know what color the skin diving suit is and it's, it comes with gloves. So it technically, you know, <laughs> it's there. I think I, I assume it's black. <laughs> um, we do have an amateur detective. I think that was a huge, uh, a big one to point out as uh, as it being an influential aspect of the later films. Um, and, of course, we have a body count. We have some suspects. We're in an urban location, uh, chase scene, spiral stairs. So it ends up with a 53, which is or a 54, which is definitely lower than even the film we did last week, uh, Death on the Four Poster which I think got higher huh. than that. Although I'm looking at my site now. Yeah, I think that got up to 57, I think. No, Death on the Four Poster is 55 on the Jalo score. It might have, We might have added more to it because I added a few more um, criteria since I scored it. But Yeah, I think during the discussion you mentioned that it went up two more points. Oh, okay. Because of... Uh, I don't remember what it was. But again, what's interesting about the way the Jalo score works is if you take a film like uh, The Possessed, The Lady of the Lake that we did two episodes yeah. ago, um, I don't really, mm -hmm. I think of that as a very uh, unique uh, entry into the, the subgenre, but it scores pretty yeah. high. It scores a 73 <clears throat> because it does what Jalos are supposed to do as far as the rules go. So, um, yeah, 
So that's the embalmer, AKA the monster of Venice. I, I liked it. I liked it enough to say um, that the ending um, is, is worth the rest of the, of the watch. And, uh, but I don't, like I said, like I said before, I think that the copy that I have now is probably as good as it needs to be for me to watch it. Um, yeah, but I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't say no to watching one that had been restored, um, to higher resolution just to see if, um, you know, there was stuff about the film that, you know, you didn't notice because of the previous versions, but I liked it. I thought it was cool. I thought it was fun. Definitely not a serious film. Yeah. I enjoyed it quite a bit. I thought the, the method of killing was pretty unique. If a little silly, but, uh, in the Jalu genre or Filone, <laughs> It's interesting anytime there's something beyond uh, straight razors and strangling and shoving into a bathtub or something, you know, because we've seen that so many times before. Yeah. And it was refreshing to see some guy in a scuba suit just grab a chick on the sidewalk and jump in the canal (laughs) (laughs) and not let go. (laughs) And then somehow... Drag her still beautiful, not at all bloated body <laughs> into his secret lair and fill her up with a couple syringes of liquid nitrogen <laughs> and, uh, or whatever they call that shit. The, uh, the embalming you know that fluid fog. No, no, the, the stuff they use in concerts and shit. Oh, that yeah. like smoke stuff that comes. It's no, I forget. There's yeah. I forget what it's called too. Yeah. Well, not, it was pretty cool. I would know, not to mention the fact that when he would pull the victims into the canal, if they fought him at all, they may have banged their head on something. They may have like punched into the to the the wall, you know. And how did they? You're right. How did they maintain this beauty uh, after going through yeah. all that? <laughs> Somehow, Grace's belt ended up wrapped around a pole. Yeah, on the but side she looks fine that. otherwise. And she looked better than she did before. Yeah. Maybe there's something to it. But <laughs> I told you it's a makeover. Uh, it's a makeover movie. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. It'd be funny if like one of those little bottles he was mixing together had like some uh, cosmetic brand name <laughs> blazing across the bottom. I think this movie would be a good candidate for a remake. Yeah. Like if somebody had a better budget and maybe a little more time to kind of iron out some of the wrinkles that we've pointed out along the way, I think it could be pretty cool. Yeah. But give a little more backstory and motivation to the killer. Uh, Don't just do the same yoink splash three times in a row. Although to their credit, that last one was more like a yoink splash, 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 because it capsized the whole damn boat. Yeah. But I think it would be cool uh, if um, if they did a remake that, you know, the first time we see a yoink splash and then maybe the second time we see a little bit more of what happens underwater. And then the third time we yeah, see like the yeah. whole sequence from 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 apprehension to the the, the final breath, you know, under the water or something. Um, that right. would be cool. You know, obviously, back then they couldn't do it for lots of different reasons. So. 
And I would say even go darker than this, because like I said kind of early on, necrophilia is the elephant in the room yeah. with this film. Right. That they do not in any way acknowledge. That's right. And they pussyfoot around it so much. And I'm not saying do a remake where you see somebody actually banging a stiff, <laughs> right. but at least acknowledge it. Because that is, I mean, that's one of the darkest things you can imagine. Yeah. And if you tie it in, like put a little more character building into these girls, like give them backstories or scenes of interaction where we start to feel something for them besides uh, cardboard cutout victim number one, number two, number three. Yeah. You know, I think this could be a pretty effective thriller yeah. slash horror film. Like if A24 or Bloomhouse or somebody decided to do it. What about Matt? We could have Matt Wall do it. Yeah. He's not busy. Next episode, the murder clinic. Patients and staff of an isolated mental hospital are being killed off by a hooded maniac who stalks the halls. Yeah, so this is definitely a step up from the last two. So Death on the Four Poster and The Embalmer, definitely lower budget. Um, lower quality films. This one is a higher quality film. You have a good story and it's a period piece. So that makes it even more interesting because it's not a boosty. Yeah. It's not modern at all. Um, And it's good. Uh, I think a lot of people like it and I think it'll have your, so you've never seen it. No, I haven't. I think you'll like it. I actually listened to fragments. Fragments of fear did an episode on the murder clinic episode five. Um, and they did a really good job talking about it. So um, after watching, after watching the film, it's worth listening to. So that's what we'll cover next time, everybody. And as always, just want to throw those plugs down again, get in touch with us by going to Jalo chow chow at gmail.com. Join our Facebook group, which is called Jalo chow chow. I hate Matt wall is where you can find everything related to our good buddy, Matt, who's um, out in California doing his thing. Of course, the is my website that we've referenced a few times here today. And the book bloodstained narratives, the Jalo film in Italy and abroad, uh, a, f- a book that was just released in March that um, I recommend to everybody who's into the academic side of Jalo. It is, A link to how you can find more information about that book will be in the show notes as well. Al, once again, thank you for spending your Saturday evening with me. Uh, No problem. Thank you. It's been a pleasure as always. So until next time, everybody, we're going to say ciao, ciao. Ciao, ciao.